Hello and welcome to this Reservoir Dogs 25th anniversary special episode of the Electric Shadows podcast. This was recorded in September of 2017. It always takes me a while to get these things edited. Therefore, this was recorded before the Weinstein scandal broke, so there is no mention of Harvey Weinstein and what has happened in this episode. It was also recorded before it was announced that Tarantino was going to do an R-rated Star Trek. We would have had a few things to say about that, I'm sure. Let's see if he actually does it. And we should also point out it includes clips from Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs that contains language that some listeners may find offensive, including racial epithets. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the discussion of Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes, as Kay Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend Just Keeps On Trucking. Welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, and as always, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my learned colleague, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Rob, editor of of allthefilmsites.com. Of course, and um, at, at Robert M. Wallace on Twitter, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure for us today to be joined by Mr. Ian Byrne. Hello, hello, thank you for having me back. Um, yes, I might be back after that nice JFK experience. Yes, so Ian was on the JFK episode, as you will undoubtedly remember, and we thought he did pretty well, so, <laughs> so we thought, let's get him back to see if that was just a fluke. <laughs> no, it is a pleasure to have you back, and I'm really excited by what we're going to be talking about today, because it is 25 years since Reservoir Dogs was released in the US. It came out in this country in, I think, January or February of 1993. So that's fine, it gives you some time to edit. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, for those... That joke won't work. <laughs> that joke won't hurt. To explain it, don't worry. We recorded the uh, JFK podcast in December of last year. It got released, I think, in June. So, therefore, it took a while to edit. And, uh, yes, so this will not take us long. So yes, this is going to be a special about Reservoir Dogs, which will undoubtedly then spill into Quentin Tarantino and the films of him thereof. We'll we'll show our usual discipline and restraint. (laughs) Our usual discipline and restraint and stay on topic and we won't be wayward. We'll try and be Reservoir Dogs rather than, say, Django or something like that. Oh, that's really well done. (laughs) So, Reservoir Dogs, uh, released in 1992 written and directed by an, a then-unknown, Quentin Tarantino. It premiered at Sundance, caused a real storm at Sundance. It then did the festival circuit for the next year. It's a crime film. It's a heist film where you don't see the heist, which back in 1992 was actually a very, very novel concept. It is profane. It has, I think, some sparkling dialogue in it. It has some now quite problematic dialogue in it. It has amazing performances, and I think it was actually a fantastic calling card from a then very exciting director. Ian, where were you when you first saw Reservoir Dogs? Um, In the cinema? (laughs) (laughs) Well, mm. crouched behind a dumpster. 
scratching myself in two places at the same time. Um, it was it was my my good friend had his eighteenth birthday. We were huge film nuts, and the buzz about Reservoir Dogs had been well in those days. Buzz only came from like two or three places. So I remember Barry Norman doing a big thing about it at the end of what it would have been film 93, I guess. And right just, seen it, just having just seen it at Cannes. And was it 92 or 93? No, I think I saw it I saw it in 93. Well, it came out in 93. Yeah. It was released in this country in 93, yeah. yeah. But in like, I think it was January of 93. Yeah, I saw it in March 98, uh, 1993. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and so we were all little 18 year olds, and this was like, this was exploitative cinema but it was it had pedigree and it had um, yeah everyone was excited and about this in, intelligent muscular brutal quick film and yeah this was kind of like a this was a fantastic experience yes it had pedigree charm because <laughs> it's called Ooh, Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs, Dogs. <laughs> yeah it's, it's good. that sort of thing for our American listeners We've both switched off now. <laughs> We've both switched off now, yes. Say like, never again, never again. Um, and you're absolutely right about the fact that it was Empire, or it was the Barry Norman Film Show, or it was maybe Premiere Magazine every oh, once in a were. while. Yeah, if you were. And the Premiere uh, had a big thing about the films getting released in 92 to 93, and there was a still from Reservoir Dogs, and it was Mr. Orange, covered in blood, shooting his gun, uh, yeah, lying down on that ramp, in the warehouse where they all go to. And it was like, what is that? Look at that, that looks so amazing. And how many times has he been shot? And oh my God, look at this, that's such a striking image. And they were talking about this film being this amazing crime film and it had completely torn up the circuit and there was this guy who was this bold new voice in American cinema and it had come in for a lot of controversy and walkouts due to the high levels of violence in this film. And it's like, well, obviously, as an 18-year-old who really loved his Scorsese and his horror films, it was like, I, we, I have to see this film. And I remember it got released and I dragged a load of people because I couldn't drive so, and a friend could. So I said, we have to go and see this film. I went to see the film and I had to, it was amazing. It was amazing to watch that film at the time because there just wasn't anything like that. There wasn't anything that was as in love with cinema and in, and in love with just showing how wonderful cinema could be. And, and dialogue. And, and dialogue, yeah. The, just this amazing dialogue. And just people talking for ages. And But it was it was funny and it was screwball dialogue. It was like, it, was yeah, it comes like out it was of hours. Because I think the films that we'd watched that were kind of like on that kind of element, you'd be more like The Godfather or you'd be mm. Mean Streets. It would be kind of like this, well, this was 10 years before, this was 15 years before. And Reservoir Dogs was like, okay, this is now, and this is a film that we can discover now. I mean, this now. is somebody who's is made by somebody who's seen all the films that we've seen and loves mm-hmm. them. I'm pretty sure he's seen a lot, many, many more films than yeah. we've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm looking forward to discovering what those films are and kind of, you know, reverse engineering this. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing that it, it became. I think it was one of those things where it then became really important to know all the different films that have made up this film. And suppose it was like an early start to internet fan culture where just knowing all the references somehow means that you're an expert in it. And I think that's a really interesting point because although I think the film made an impact because it was, because it's, it's a swift film as well, it's what, an hour and 40 minutes in and yep. out, really, really tight, small cast, very brutally made, but it comes with all this meta baggage that has, that's, in many ways, that's been the holdover from this film. That's what this film's given us. It's given us the sense of film community, discussion. I mean, immediately, I mean, I was reading Empire at the time this came out, and that was it. That hijacked the letters column for months and months and yeah. months. And the thing is, but it is possible to see it and really enjoy it and get none of that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a mark of the filmmaker, I think, in that you don't have to 
understand where all this is coming from to realise that there's a very very good story being told here. And when and when I first saw it, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't get most of it. I think I was I would have been about fourteen fifteen, mm. and I watched it. I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I would have got the DVD. Um, they uh, they used to have this DVD library at um, the school I went to, and I don't but I don't think it would have been in there. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, however I got it, you know, I, I just remember really enjoying it and thinking how sort of how sharp it was. And you know, and straight. I think at one point when he, they couldn't get the funding, they, everyone was saying to Quentin Tarantino, "You should do this as theatre," yeah. because you know it, it would be. There's a version of this film where you, you could strip a lot of it back, and you, you know it could take place entirely within that warehouse if you took out the flashbacks. I think it would be less. I think it'd be a less enjoyable. Well, one of the yeah, sorry, go on. No, I think that's a really interesting thing because I think just when the film realises it can't take its confines any further, it goes down into that brilliant Tim Roth rabbit hole telling the story yeah. and suddenly you're in this brilliant sort of like 10 minute sequence that it's like oh this is no this is this is really something this is this is great you've managed to, you, you're not just making a film about a crime you're making a film about words and character and about and, storytelling exactly and you could totally do that as a theatre piece totally but it's like that, that that I think is when you get to that bit it's like oh I'm really on board for the, the final couple of minutes of this film well it was done as theatre wasn't it there was a they've done some universities state- all over, all over England, because they, this film did amazingly well in Britain. It did, I think, it did three million dollars in the states when it got released, and it was made for one point five million dollars, and and did three million dollars. So really, it didn't make an impact at the box office at all. But it was a it was a massive critical impact, and it was you know, seen by the right people to get Tarantino into meetings. But in this country, it did about four and a half million pounds. And even if that was released now, that would still be a pretty a pretty good result. So there was there was something about that film in this country that it just really really took off. And then you had again, I think it was Empire was talking about how a number of universities were just putting on their own productions of Reservoir Dogs, and it would be interesting to see it because you're right, it's like it can't all work in one space. It has to break out. There is, and I think it's one of those things that it uses different spaces at just the right time to to break the. Yeah, the claustrophobia because it would become a bit I think just a bit miserable if it was all in there I think it's also because the characters tones of voice some, I mean we'll talk about this a bit later I'm sure but it's for me the Michael Madsen bit doesn't work as well if I, I find that it's, it's, it's powerful but it's also boring and it's also like yeah I know this character this is every single bully I'm bored of this bully and so once he's dead it's an energetic burst of life and so I think that sort of like takes it up from there it's I think that works quite well. Yes, and we'll get on to that because that's, I think, a key point. Well, obviously, it's the only point of the film that people were talking about when it got released. But Rob, you watched it on DVD. Yeah, I would have been about 14, 15. And, <laughs> I, and, I, and I do remember being really... Yeah, that's just something that, that's just an incredibly entertaining film. And a great, a great, great crime thriller, you know, the performances. Um, I think, I'm trying to think who the, who the film would have been really introducing to. I mean, obviously, like Michael Madsen, some of the, some of the actors who sort of become Tarantino mainstays. Actually, apparently, yeah, that might have been my first introduction to pretty much the whole cast as was well. Was it the first Tarantino film that you saw? Uh, yeah, it was. It was the first oh, Tarantino film I saw. Yeah, because yeah, I think I think I decided I wanted to start at the beginning. Oh, that's so cool because that is it's like yeah. you accidentally fall into films, don't you? It's yeah. like uh, you, and it's but to sort of like go actually no, this is a guy who's got he's got a through line. Yeah, and to start at the beginning. So what I think probably the first film you would see would be Pulp Fiction. It's like that's the one that everyone talks about. That's the one that's. You know, that's on more than Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's yeah, he, he does come with his I mean, yeah, allure, doesn't he? Yeah, I think you could argue that Pulp Fiction is the most Tarantino Tarantino film, yeah. mm. and everything since then, to an extent, has been 
in the shadow of that film. Yeah, in the shadow of that film, and and influenced. It got it's got sort of gone off in different different strands, and they, they all feeds back in together. But you know, all the films after that point, including Jackie Brown, are kind of their own thing. He's doing a specific thing with that film, in, in a way that in Pulp Fiction he was doing everything with that film. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I that's mean, a good point. We'll get back onto his world logs in just a minute, honestly. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> he has a great quote when he says, "People pay to go and see my movie, and they'll pay eight to fifteen dollars, something like that." And I want them to know they've seen a motherfucking movie that night. And it's like, well, that's a noble intention that you want people to actually experience something and, and get their money's worth. Because, you know, Tarantino, when he, sort of, he grew up in LA, and when they saw the flea pits in the you could sort of wander from one, you could pay, you know, you pay your price for one ticket, but you sort of wander from one screen mm. to another. Yeah. And yeah, I kind of get, get that vibe with his films where he's like, okay, yeah, you've seen that film, and now you want to see this film, and you want to see. Which I think is why it's, I would argue that he's never actually bested his first film I think The Reservoir Dogs is still his best film because it's his most focused film he just trusts that he that this film just needs to be 100 minutes it's his shortest film and it, was, it doesn't need to go off in all these different directions and I think now he's, he just thinks I, if I put everything in how long is Death Proof? Death Proof is about, that's, about, about an hour 50 actually yeah that's a good point version, yeah. right, so the full version is hour 50 but that's a really good point though because of course the um, the Grindhouse the Grindhouse version is hour 25 but that's Grindhouse and Grindhouse is, is a three hour film yeah. so it's I mean yeah but you can get into all the different I mean, things there but yeah it's, it's interesting with Reservoir Dogs he's clearly yeah he's this guy who's just coming out he's try, trying to establish his voice he's saying this is who I am and then by the time even Pulp Fiction rolled about that's kind of when the myth of Tarantino sets in yeah as, definitely yeah and then everything since then has kind of been trading on that to an extent. And it's, and it's interesting, you know, you forget that at the same point he was doing Reservoir Dogs, he'd written the scripts for well, the script for the film. I can't, like, it was called something like On the Road. I can't remember the title. Of the, that would eventually become both True Romance and Natural Born Killers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, and the, and, and the fact that he'd done, he'd been doing script doctoring for a while before, and so he wasn't so you know he hadn't made it. He hadn't, this was his directorial debut, but he wasn't a completely unknown entity. But it's because he did. Um, sorry, and he did some script doctoring on the Rookie, didn't yeah, he? The Clint Eastwood film. Joking for yeah. Sonia Braga. Yeah, Charlie, Charlie Sheen. Sheen. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, he was getting bits and pieces of work because he was also an actor. Wasn't well, he was an actor, but he was able to write Reservoir Dogs. Because he appeared on the Golden Girls, Girls. as an Elvis impersonator, <laughs> and because of that, he says story. he's still really he still stands by his book. because he, 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 <laughs> he he's still pleased to have done that because he's like out of the whole line of Elvis impersonators, he's the one in the middle. I'm the only one doing fifties Elvis. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, everyone else was doing early seventies. The way we were, everyone was doing Blue Hawaii. Kind yeah, of, yeah. yeah. Um, the uh, but because he had a speaking line in that, they had to pay him an actor's fee. Rather than an extras fee, which mean which meant he got residuals whenever it was shown, and because it was you know, syndicated around the world, he got checks every week, and it was he said it, it was enough that he could just he could just write full time, and he also said I can see how people can make a really, really tiny living by just having one line on Quincy or yeah that's a really <laughs> lovely line. story yeah. yeah. So in one way, the first Tarantino myth is the scrappy guy who can put it all together himself because it's small and tight, and and, and its necessity is the mother of invention, and you're you're in and out in a hundred minutes, and then that immediately gets taken over by the I'm going to take everything and throw everything at the screen. Right, I'm going to stop you there because that's it. That's the place where Reservoir Dog starts off. So we should probably say 
I mean, there are going to be lots of spoilers in this. We're going to spoil everything, aren't we, really? The film is 25 well, years old. Yeah, I think, indeed, yeah. But I think we're also <laughs> probably going to... a podcast to... on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Probably. Then but stop think... now and watch Reservoir <laughs> Dogs. <laughs> we'll and we'll maybe... probably also spoil some of his other films as well. But so honestly... Watch all of them. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't watched the new Tarantino film and it came out over a year ago, then probably you should, because it was all right. So, who wants to tell the story of Reservoir Dogs? Uh, should we hand over to Ian on this one? <laughs> Yeah, do you want to tell the story of Reservoir Dogs? Um, well, the story of Reservoir Dogs is what uh, six strangers are brought together by a godfather kind of figure to carry out an incredibly efficient diamond heist. And it all goes wrong when one of the uh, so-called professionals goes psycho in the heist and everything goes to shit and they all have to flee for the hills and in various bits and spurts the wounded battered dogs meet up at the meeting spot and it all descends into chaos and recrimination and the reason why he goes a little bit psycho of course is because the police turn up and it and it then makes him think that one of them could be a rat <laughs> so that's the story of Reservoir Dogs it's a simple tale and I think it's very well told this was a film that was going to be made for $30,000 when Tarantino sold the script for True Romance and he was going to get the WGA minimum of $30,000 and he said, right, then I'm, I'm going to make this as my first film. It's going to be $30,000 with, uh, with me and some friends. Which goes to your point, Ian, about necessity is the mother of invention. I'm, I just have to get a film made, and this is what's going to happen. He was going to play Mr. Pink, and Lawrence Bender, who produced it, was going to be in it. He was going to be a member of the cast. Well, he isn't, isn't he? Yeah. As He's one of the cops. Yeah. He's actually runs down the road firing his gun at the car at Mr. Pink, which I think is quite reckless. <laughs> <laughs> but his friend just been shot, so... <laughs> well, Blue Lives Matter. Yeah, indeed, Blue Lives Matter. Well, that's a really interesting point in this film, isn't it, when they refer to cops as not being real people. But you see, I, again, that's the, 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 the dialogue is, is, is great for that. It's like, it's the whole, let's go to work, okay, ramblers, and it is like that we're putting in a role here, and it's, yeah, it's like, no good guys, we're the good guys, and it's... it's it's really nicely sort of like um, morally placed. The yeah. way that you, you are one of us or you're one of them. But yeah. in a weird way, it's almost like science fiction. It's Well, it was that thing where, yeah, when he says, can anyone just, just, just couple cops. of cops? Yeah. They're real people. They're real That's people. It. Yeah, so what was going to happen was that he was going to make this film. He was going to shoot it 16mm. It was going to be a calling card film, which it actually then became, but it became a much bigger budget calling card film. Possibly the best calling card film of all time because of the, <laughs> the cast he got together and what, and what he got them to do. But then, and this is a story that's been oft-told, but uh, his, his friend was Lawrence Bender, who was an actor but was also looking to be a producer. He was given an ultimatum by Tarantino that he had a couple of months to raise a million dollars or he was just going to shoot it for $30,000 at Lawrence Bender. And it's one of those things where you realise... Maybe you do need to go out and talk to people to get stuff done and sort of like not just sit on the internet spouting your opinion. Because he was at an acting class, wasn't he? And yeah. it was his acting teacher who, in the end, got the script to Harvey Keitel. Harvey, it was in an acting class with Harvey Keitel's wife or something. I think it was that the acting teacher knew Harvey Keitel's wife and passed it to her and then she passed it to Harvey Keitel yeah. and then he phoned up and had a chat with them and, and said, all right, I'm in. Yeah, that would be like a nice call to get, wouldn't it? When you think, we've got Harvey Keitel, we've got Scorsese's muse in his breakthrough film, Mean Streets, but what to Harvey be the Keitel, Godfather. What had Harvey Keitel done before that? I mean, since the sort of like um, oh, the, 70s Scorsese heyday. That's the other thing that we'll get onto about Tarantino, is that Tarantino rescues really good actors from mm. career doldrums. 
You did it with Travolta in Pulp Fiction, Pam Greer in Jackie Brown, and Harvey Keitel, you're right, was... Uh, Robert Forster, yeah. Robert Forster, yes, indeed. Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, because because Bruce Willis was doing striking distance, yeah. and all those rubbish things that were kind of Something like... by night or whatever it was. No, I'm thinking of the Moonlight thing, basically. Colour of, of Night. Colour of Night. And it was films that were trying to be diehard, but weren't diehard. But for Harvey Keitel, so, so Harvey Keitel... Could you put your glass down a bit quieter because it picks up on the thing? Motherfucker. <laughs> no, sorry, it <laughs> I should have given you a master. Am I the only one here who's a goddamn professional? <laughs> <laughs> now I have to leave it in. <laughs> um, so, yes. Because Harvey Keitel was fired from. That is a tasty beverage. <laughs> so Harvey Keitel. I'm going to have to ignore it. <laughs> So Harvey Keitel was fired from Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. After two weeks of filming. Of course he was. Yeah. And I'd love to see that footage. And apparently it was kept. But they've never been able to release it because I think that Harvey Keitel doesn't want anyone to see this because he wasn't enjoying making it. And Coppola said that he was just giving an absolutely awful performance. So therefore he was biffed after a couple of weeks and Martin Sheen was brought in, which you know, worked out pretty well. And Harvey Keitel then... Yeah, kind of spent the 80s a little bit in career doldrums. It was talk about that very quickly. And obviously Tarantino never biffed, never never cast anybody who'd been biffed from a major film ever again. What? Go on. Eric Stoltz. Oh, yes, oh, yeah. indeed. Yes, he was. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Who was biffed from, yeah, Back to the Future, biffed, wasn't absolutely. he? He was literally he biffed, biffed from, from Back, Back to the Future. future. <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh. So when you look at Harvey Keitel's career, he, in the 80s, particularly the early 80s, Saturn 3. Remember Saturn 3? Of course I do. That's Kurt the uh, sex sci-fi um, cannibal robot. Isn't That's it? right. So Kurt Douglas and Farrah Fawcett are a couple, and it's a bit a bit queasy because he is really old and <laughs> she's not. Um, but they live in this sort of like idyllic Eden on a space station, um, and Harvey Keitel turns up. And... He says, "Yes, I got lost, and I need, um, and I got lost in space. And you have to help me because, because uh, I'm going to die out there. So therefore, he comes in, and it's like a, yeah, a stranger arriving it's at the house. It is dead calm, yeah. Famously and infamously, his voice was dubbed for the film. Yes, and it was dubbed by um, a British actor. I can't think who it was, but Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> but it was it was a British actor, Roy Detrice, oh. who tried to do an American accent." But Harvey Keitel has a very, very distinct voice. Yeah, Bronx voice, isn't he? It's like he's a New Yorker, but it just doesn't work. Isn't there that scene in um, Saturn Three where uh, Farrah Fawcett just turns on the waterworks? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, <Sorry. laughs> but he was in stuff. So he was in The Border. He was in Falling in Love, which was the De Niro, Meryl Streep film. He was just doing bit parts in films. He was in The Last Temptation of Christ as Judas. He's a powerhouse Judas who actually is Jesus' conscience in that film. That's a and big thing to be said for the role of Judas. The, the, whole Christ, the whole Christianity thing doesn't work without Judas. Judas is a very important part of that. Indeed. And if you go to Reservoir Dogs, there is a Judas. <laughs> and if you look at Pulp Fiction, it's all about Jules getting his soul. So, redemption is one of the themes, I think, with Tarantino films. <laughs> yes, redemption is one of the themes. <laughs> I want to get my way, and I want to get my way now. <laughs> That's what I said, redemption. <laughs> uh, yeah, the two Jakes, Stanley and Louise, the two Jakes. Bugsy. Bad, 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 bad. bad. Are, we, are, we, are we calling it Lieutenant or Lieutenant? Oh, lieutenant, because it's Bad Lieutenant, yeah. So this was the thing, was that he was bad on Bad Lieutenant a, was before Reservoir Dogs. Came out the same He was on a bit of a career renaissance at this point, because he, he was the cop in Thurman and Louise. Yes. And was, was very good. 
He was the cop in Mortal Thoughts and was very good, even though that film was... Ugh. Bugsy, he was Mickey Cohen. He's good as Mickey Cohen. He only has like a couple of scenes. He was Oscar nominated. Oh, wow, okay. Wow, because okay. he's not in it that much. I, that's interesting, I but he's very, very good. It's, it's good. It's one of those where it's... It tries to be a 1940s gangster film, which means that it has none of the real darkness of the character. Mm. Um, and they only kill their own. But it's it's very handsome and it's you know so, and Ben it's, Kingsley is um, acting with their hats. Um, oh, oh, what's Jaime? No, Jaime is it? It's uh, Maya Lansky. Maya Lansky, that's it. Oh, yeah. um, and of course, it's a Warren Beatty film. And it's a Warren yeah. Beatty film. Yeah. 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 So we know how that ends. <laughs> and then it's in Bad Lieutenant. And Bad Lieutenant was this is going to get so so rambling and <laughs> discursive now. Come on, ramblers! <laughs> Come on, ramblers! Let's get rambling. <laughs> So apt for this podcast. That's really good. Um, so, you might remember at the end of Reservoir Dogs, we get the, we get the Harvey Keitel wine. The oh yeah, wine he does when he realises that everything has collapsed. <laughs> that's exactly it. What's that, Jim? That, that's, that's the noise he makes. So, our friend Tom so went to see Bad Lieutenant in Essex at Lakeside Cinema. Everyone thought they were going to get Reservoir Dogs, and they got Badly Ted. So they got this scorching <laughs> account of Catholic guilt and sexual violence, and this one man's descent into his own personal hell, and trying to achieve redemption through solving the rape of a nun. And in that film, there's lots and lots <laughs> of... That's how I'm going to find redemption, by the way. Yeah, they find, I yeah. find redemption. Oh. But he whines in that film a lot, and every time he whined people would start giggling because they knew they were going to get something hilarious like him dancing around with no clothes on and sort of like, yeah, being completely wasted. Or just him just screaming at the camera for five That's minutes. That's the weird thing about this film because after you get that... Fan- this Reservoir Dogs, the film we're normally discussing, <laughs> but after the, that fantastic first five minutes of the, the conversation in the diner and it immediately cuts to um, wailing Tim Roth <laughs> bleeding out in the back of a exactly, car. Exactly, with all his brave acting of... It's all of that sort of like, oh, so from the gut. So Stephen Burkhoff is just off camera or something. But <laughs> <No>. it is. <laughs> it's so weird to watch going, wow, you do not get this style of acting anymore. This is a very moment in time. It is. South oh. London, early 80s. Uh, early 90s. <laughs> no, for the, well, they, these guys are taking it. Oh, from. I say, yes, Did you guys hear that? Apparently, and this, this is one of my favourite anecdotes I've discovered about this film, David Duchovny auditioned for a role. And Tarantino, this is a quote, and I love it, is uh, he says, like, um, I really like what you're doing. I'm just not sure I want you to do it in my film. <laughs> <laughs> That's because he was... <laughs> That's young man's name. Well, presumably he was doing Mulder. So he was just being... Deadpan. <laughs> doing like yeah, Mr. Orange as Mulder. Which would... I mean, I would love to see that version. Um, Unflappable. Just in the back of the car with a gut shot, just casually. I'm dying here, Larry. I'm dying. (laughs) And I'm a cop. hospital. See, that's well. Let's talk about the opening first of all, and then get into that bit in the back of the car. So the opening scene of this, it opens. I mean, it's one of those things where he sets his stall out from the very beginning of the film because the first line of Reservoir Dogs is. Let me tell you what Lake of Virgins about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Pop culture. You're just straight into it, and it's. 
and he's treating it really seriously. But as important, he's giving his opinion on it as the definitive opinion of this little bit of pop culture that no one really thinks about and lays it out for a couple of minutes at the very beginning of his film and that's how he announces himself to the world. And yeah, it's a great... I mean, it's made probably the most famous opening dialogue scene of all time. Yeah. And the fact that it's showing that he knows how to shoot dialogue, which is, you know, a real director's sort of... And the acting is fantastic in that. I love the facial expressions of the characters. You see, Tim Roth, who's got very little to say in that first scene, the way he looks at everyone and the faces he pulls, it's like, it's absolutely, you can't see the acting. It just seems really natural and really interesting. But he looks a bit pained at one point, doesn't he, when they're talking about it. It's like when... um... And he says, when Joe, uh, the Godfather character, is looking through his book, um, and Mr. White, played by Harvey Keitel, says, what the fuck is that? And he sort of looks a bit pained, and he's sort of like, you're siding with Mr. White. And, it's, and he's thinking, that, yeah, his, his face in that scene is really interesting. I love that bit, because it's odd, because I don't know if it's the, the version I saw was clipped or whatever, but when um, Joe's standing up, and Larry, uh, Harvey Keitel, is sitting down, He's cut from here. It doesn't work on a podcast. But, um, so he's you cut see from his nose down. Yes, his nose yeah. down. Yeah. Yeah. You can't yeah. see his mouth. It's like, it's really odd framing. But he gets the wonderful lines. He says, no, it's my book now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a really, really it's like that joke. <laughs> That's right. No, it's my book now, sorry. <laughs> this film was shot in Super 35, which meant that it was shot to be shown okay on telly, because it's like a scope film. But they wanted it to look okay on telly because they thought that most of the um, of the business from this film would come from video, <laughs> which was actually true in in the states. So it was shot and then masked to scope, mm. which means that that is because I always noticed that thinking like you have chopped his mouth off because you are masking this image, mm. and it wasn't properly framed there to allow for Super Thirty Five, which isn't really a format that's used anymore because everything just gets released in widescreen right now. But back then it was like you would just take off the mask and all the framing would still work for telly. Um, I mean, apparently, yeah. and obviously I, I guess I think one of the reasons that yeah, there were also some odd choices that Lawrence Tierney was apparently really difficult to work with, as in like he just he, he, he just couldn't remember dialogue. All right. I mean, there's, a, there's a moment in it where Tarantino sort of, um, where they're getting up to leave and Mr. Brown lifts his arm up, which apparently was the cue for them to stop filming. Oh. Which was it, because obviously he was directing that scene at the, while being in it. Oh, was that what you that's were talking really, about the other? That's really interesting, because I always notice that. When they get up to leave the diner, he does sort of like do that thing where he's got a big smile on his face, and he kind of it does something with his arm. You're right, he puts his arm up and sort of like, you know, waves, oh, cool. waves his hand. And I always kind of thought, that I think you are saying that is your character saying, let's just get on with this. But that is also you, Tarantino, yeah, doing something. You are directing. And that's really interesting that he was actually just saying, okay, this is the end of the shot now, so Lawrence, you can stop. Excellent. You can stop talking. <laughs> I, I, I think there's this that scene especially, uh, one bit of casting really serves as a mission statement because it's obviously got Edward Bunker in it. Mm. Yeah. Who, uh, who was a career criminal. Yeah, who, who plays the Mr. Blue character. And uh, do you guys know the term Mustache Pete? Yeah. And he, uh, mustache Pete, is, it's a term that crops up. It's I think console, isn't it? Yeah, or, or like, a, a, yeah, it's like a, an old, one of the old, one of the old guys who, you know, who used to do things a certain way. And, oh, and right. Like, and uh, which sort of for some strange reason seems really appropriate given he's got that wonderful tash and that sort of thing. Yeah. And um, and, and uh, Edward Bunker sort of laid out a little bit was obviously was a real life bank robber who spent a lot of time in prison, and wrote um, the book on which the film Straight Time is based. Yeah. Oh, and, okay. And which is uh, called uh, which is called uh, No uh, No Beast So Fierce. What a great title. <laughs> and, no Beast So Fierce. And Straight Time later on. <laughs> You're saying it like like us now. And Straight Time was one of the films that um, Quentin Tarantino uh, later screened as being an influence on the film um, Jackie Brown. 
Well, that's so he, did, he, did, he actually screened that. And on a complete, on, on another tangent, <laughs> um, Edward Bunker was really good friends with Danny Trejo. They met in Folsom. Danny Trejo was actually the godfather to his son. And obviously Danny Trejo <laughs> did, uh, was, it was in, you know, From Dust Till Dawn. Years, yeah. And fed into the whole Grindhouse thing with Machete, mm. which, you know, came off the back of Grindhouse. <laughs> that's, yeah, well that's interesting because could you, men, could you imagine going out with Eddie Bunker and Danny Trejo on a night out, you wouldn't. I mean, it would be the best night ever. You would die, though. Uh, well, apparently, Danny... I mean, you would die. He died six different ways at once. <laughs> Lap dance to death, knife to death. He had three different illegal substances in him. Appar- a big smile on his face. Apparently, and he was shot. Edward Bunker and Lawrence Tierney had had a punch up in a, in a car parking lot, like literally decades before. That Edward Bunker remembered, and Lawrence Tierney didn't. He's like, yeah, didn't we get in a fight once? <laughs> well, Lawrence Tierney, yeah, was old school. Was the old school crime? He was. He was fifties B movie crime, wasn't it? Which is a, yeah, another thing that this film invokes. But yeah, and I think that the Tarantino said one of the kind of regrets he has about the film was that all the Mr. Blue stuff had to be lost. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of Mr. Blue. So I'm not even sure if it, like it was shot. He? he has four lines, doesn't he? One of them, he's just going, he's basically just going, dicks, 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 dicks. He says, how many dicks is that? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and then, uh, but this guy was really nice. Oh, yeah, she was okay for anything special. What's special? Take that back and take dick. We'll get into the sexual politics of the film as well. Oh yeah. Also, when when Nice Guy Eddie says, you know, I'd give her, I'd give her twelve percent for that. Man, that really dates this film. Because, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because now, because now, like fifteen percent is bare minimum in, this, in tipping in the states. So like, you know, they're all they're all a bunch of fucking cheapskates, is what I'm saying. Well, yeah. it's like yeah, it's it's an eight dollar tip, <laughs> and even back in yeah ninety three, eight eight dollars when well yeah Joe's a millionaire. But anyway, I only noticed this um, watching it yesterday. But um, um, Tim Roth is the one who grasses up, who didn't tip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's yeah, like, that's right. He's the, the grass. Yeah, he indeed. can't stop himself snitching on yeah, people. That's right. it's, it's such a nice little clue there. That, uh, it's yeah, really like that. That's right. It's so well done. So yeah, so the opening of this scene of the film, sorry, is them having breakfast in a cafe before they go to, to do the bank job. It's really good because none of them are talking about the job. They're all just talking about like a virgin or they're talking about that other one, um, what was it, The night, the Lights Went Out in Georgia, that yeah. song. Or a book he's got, like an address book, or, or tipping and the whole thing about tipping. And that's what I think is so good about the opening of this film is that you get the like a virgin scene, but then you get a genuinely, I think, a great speech about tipping. And not just because I was working at McDonald's at the time. And Mr. Pink yeah, says, Yeah, says, This is a hard job. So I was working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Yeah. This is the best yeah. film ever made. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because the tipping um, speech was originally meant to be given to Mr. White at the point where Tarantino was playing Mr. Was, wanted to play Mr. Pink. Oh, well, okay. And it's interesting the film, I think all the performances are great. But that scene is largely Tarantino having a conversation with various versions of himself. Oh, well, the whole film is. Oh, oh yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah. Yeah. His whole yeah. career is, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's. Um, but that's interesting because I think he was. Because he said that he. I think it came from the fact that he worked a minimum wage job in which he wasn't going to be tipped, which was presumably video archives where you know, he worked and got his film education by just watching lots and lots of films. And Billy also read lots of books in the end. Anyway. But then would have to go 
to a cafe and tip, and it's like, but we earn the same money, but I'm giving you more of my money. And I've it's got like, that here. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino never tipped in his life. <laughs> but now, but the thing there was that um, Steve Buscemi then said, yeah, it's fine for Quentin. He he wrote this, but doesn't have to tip. I have to tip over the odds now because I, I am Mr. Pink. So I'm the one that has to tip more, even though it was Quentin who wrote it. <laughs> I really like that thing in the scene where it's Harvey Keitel who gets the thing and he starts talking about how waitressing is the number one occupation for underemployed women and it's like given everything that happens later on in the film where there are no women unless yeah. you're shooting them that it's like he actually sort of takes time to say this is this is a role that's important for the for the female economy and then you can say oh, all right that's, that's actually right on good for you and then you get uh, Michael Madsen sort of like talking about what like a virgin's like. Says, I thought just about some some girl who's been through some hard times. And he actually talks with what you might mistake for empathy for this woman having gone through a hard time. And then given everything else, you then find out about Michael Madsen's yeah. character. And it's really sort of like wrong-footed. And it's a really good thing about the waitressing is the you know, number one occupation for female non-college graduates or something like that. With the wonderful comeback from Mr. Pink, which is... And it's not college bullshit you're giving me. I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. And it's like, okay, this is zinging dialogue. I mean, this is this is kind of like yeah. His Girl Friday, which I watched earlier this year, and it's like, they do just give back and forth here. And no, it just... No, yes. His Girl Friday is magnificent. And also, that's... You draw a line from His Girl Friday to sitcom, when it's like, no, every single line has to be funny. And smart. And this right, is, I think is the opening of that film is. It's, it's good, it's, but it's 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 not up well, to that. that that's because that, I think the opening scene in that isn't setting that standard. That the opening scene for that is equally playing into, or more playing into, ultimately playing into, as everything Tarantino does, the, the idea of cool. Yes. Where, and when they walk out and, and little green bags playing, yeah. And they, and each shot they show they show all of them in slow mo in the suits. It's Tarantino who's got this fucking smirk yeah, on indeed, his face. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah. like it's happening. He's like, he's like, I know how fucking cool this is. I know how iconic this is going to be. This is like, this is my fucking moment. Everyone else is just kind of, you know, is doing their job. Film be next week. Yeah. I always like that shot of him because he is clearly thinking it's happening. Yeah, the yeah. dream is happening. Yeah, it's lovely. I think there is a screwball nature to it. I know, particularly with Mr. Pink when he's talking about tipping and the whole thing about this is the world's smallest violin and just everything he says is a good zinger. But it's not, con- a com- it's not conversation. It's what we were saying earlier. They're all the same character. They all have the same hair. They I think if you look at the comedy, there's a, there's a lot of no, like... No, but at least of, you get those, like, at least you get the men and great. women. And at least you kind of... You like, get men and women. That's right. But that's the thing there is that, yeah, His Girl Friday, you got women because they said, well, it was a guy before. We need to change it to a woman now to give it that spin, which was a genius was. spin. And it which makes is a why it, film. Which is why it's, it's the best version of that story. I but it's forgetting about switching channels. Yeah. Which I is also a woman, wasn't that? I love that film. How could you send him up an elevator when you know he's afraid of heights? And it's very funny because Christopher Reeve plays the guy in the very I think the Tarantino would love the fact that we are talking about switching channels. <laughs> a film that no one's talked about in 30 years. <laughs> but was one of those trailers on videos in the late 80s on every single video you rented. You got the trailer for switching channels. Anyway. And you're right about the way that it's shot because the camera kind of prowls around. So you get a good look at everyone's face and you get the close-ups of the key actors. So there's the thing where, was it Mr. Blonde says, you want to shoot this guy, Joe? And he says, oh, you shoot me in a dream, you yeah. wake up and apologise, which is from Do the Right Thing with the guys who sit on the stoop. And he says, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll fucking punch you out. <laughs> you punch me in a dream, you better wake up and apologise. It's like, is there nothing you didn't take from another <laughs> film, Quentin? But it's, it's still good, it's still good. But then you later, when he won't give his book back, and Joe says, oh, I changed my mind shoot this piece of shit and you get the close up of Mr. Blong and, 
and just get that look at his face as he as he does it, and you can you think, well, actually, yeah, you are clearly the scary bad guy here. I think that's cooler because he gets a lot of sense. We talked about faces earlier on. Michael Madsen looks sad, and he looks kind of like a little bit lunker out of place. He looks like he's got a bit more sentimentality about him in that first scene. Well, he has his code. And he also channels a lot of Robert Mitchum. I mean, well, he's doing, yeah, he's doing, a, he's, he's got his whole standing like John Wayne thing going on, and he's, yeah. The, oh, I think it's kind of like, but it's more you know, Max Cady, just like he's just a, oh, yeah, yeah, a broad shouldered presence, and he just, he just hunkers over, and it's like, and he's imposing the whole way through. Well, he gets a 10 minute scene where he's being helped, where people are helping him in a film where no one helps anyone, and he's kind of like, we'll set you up with a job. Mm, and that's right, yeah. Here, and it's like, oh, I really appreciate what you've done for me in the care packages and everything. It's like there's actual human feeling for the, the shit of the world. Yeah, 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 that's right. Just and with some abhorrent racism. And sexism <laughs> and homophobia. Yeah. It's all... <laughs> and the fucking office he lives in with the giant elephant tusks and yeah. the elephant <laughs> foot in the corner is like, right. for fuck's sake, these assholes. <laughs> assholes! <laughs> but it's so good in terms of he's got elephant tusks on his desk. One, well, because they frame pretty well in yeah. that scope frame, so he's like, yeah, framed between them. But also, yeah, that's just a lot of good characterisation from the set decoration. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's good for Sunny in Philadelphia, where no. Danny, they do their version of Lethal Weapon. Right. No, I haven't seen that one. <laughs> so they do their version of Lethal Weapon 5, or whatever it is, and Danny DeVito plays uh, the most hideous, awful troll. And it's just, it's like, oh my god, he's just lifted right out of Joe. Yeah. <laughs> one eyed, Native American, ponytailed, whore banging, scumbag racist. Oh. Also, if there's ever a Chris Penn biopic, Jonah Hill has to play him. Oh, yeah. yeah very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Of, of course, Jonah Hill is in Django, isn't he? Um, is he? Yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's one of the clans. He's one of the, yeah, up, up on the hill with the... Uh, oh. With Don Johnson, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Anyone bring another bag? No. Nobody brought an extra bag. <laughs> we all appreciate the fact that his wife took time. It, and that's the thing, it's so endlessly quotable. <laughs> <That's> like, right. <laughs> um, yeah, let's talk about the structure of the film, and then we can get into the the choice of language in the film and uh, and the different things thereof. So they go to work. It's also I think this is a film that also became one of those films that because people watched it and were obsessed by it and it was this new film that was just so exciting and just did all these different things and it was non-linear and it just loved... I tell you this podcast. Yes, that's right. We are taking a Tarantino-esque approach. I think we've probably taken a David Lynch approach to it. <laughs> But um, <laughs> he said he was going to talk about that, and now he's talking about this. He said his next sentence was something else. Um, in the early days of the internet, when you would six months to edit, yes. <laughs> when you get the forums, in the early days of the internet, you it was just people saying, "Have you noticed that a nice guy Eddie leaves his phone on the table when they go to do the job?" And there were all these little things being pointed out, and it was. Just think of a film that people will just obsess over those details, mm. and it's like, yes, he, he does leave his phone there, and um, it's Mr. White who said he was going to kill Mr. Blonde, but then later on, Mr. White says to Mr. Blonde that Mr. Pink thought about taking him out, and uh, and it's like, well, that's not quite how it works, and but, but it was yeah, clearly that people were just you know, watching it and over and over again to try and unlock the secrets of it, so they could you know, make a film as good as this. Who killed Nice Guy Eddie? Who killed Nice Guy Eddie? Yeah, the whole thing. On a first viewing, it was like. Mr. White. Mr. <laughs> White doesn't said, kill Nice Guy. He does. He does. He, he, Who kills Nice Guy Eddie? Please sniper. <laughs> Who kills Nice Guy Eddie? Uh, magic. Uh, God. God. Who do you think kills Nice Guy Eddie? I think. I don't think it's. I think it's. I he think shoots twice. A, there are four. Yeah, the, the gunshot. He doesn't shoot twice. Mr. White shoots as he goes down. 
It, I'm sorry, he does, and we should have looked at this before. No, because um, I quite like the ambiguity. I don't want. To, I don't want you to show me a clip which shows him shooting twice. I like well, the it's film. Called, it's called. It's called the film. <laughs> it's called the film that got released. Yeah. No, I like the fact that there's this weird film. You come out of it and go, "Well, who did shoot Nice Guy Eddie?" Is that refrigerator moment for the film? And it was a tagline. I was like, a, a, it was a, a, a t-shirt, that, and yeah. It's like, and, 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 and that's the thing people, people, people swearing blind that it was Mr. Pink, Pink that shot yeah. him and it was people swearing blind and, and obviously this, it was the squib going off early that's true alright uh, didn't you guys I thought, I thought we were joking around there nice guy the squib went off early oh but Mr. White does shoot as he goes down yeah, well, yeah but by which point the, squ- the squib's already gone mm. off which is why it's okay. the question of who shot Nice Guy Eddie. It's because they had a technical malfunction and the fucking squib went off early. Oh, really? So I didn't okay. get that. No, I didn't get that. And which, which is why, which is why that where that whole thing comes from. Oh. It's the fact they didn't that they didn't reshoot it. I don't think well, it is the reason why that comes from. I think it's because it's obvious that Harvey Keitel doesn't shoot as he goes down. I think does, that's why it's, it's. I think that's why people say who shot Nice Guy Eddie. Because you watch Mr. White in that, and you just see, and you just kind of see it happen in front of your eyes. It's like the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> <laughs> There's clearly a bullet coming from two different directions there at least. <laughs> So, oh, sorry, we just did a shout-back to a previous podcast, uh, to the, uh, the JFK podcast. I want to do a shout-back to, re- to our most recent Stephen King podcast, Go on. in that um, Lawrence T- uh, Tinney is in Silver Bullet. Yes, he is, that's right. Oh, yeah. really? He plays a tavern owner, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I've not seen Silver Bullet. Oh, it's just there. It's amazing. Oh, and I've never seen it. In that it's not amazing. <laughs> It's not a good film, but it's it's one of those films that you watch. It's a good because I don't like it. It's, it's a soft film. I like it because I don't like it. I watched it when I was 13 and thought, that was an adaptation of a book I really like, <laughs> therefore I would not like this film. And it's so weird to watch it again. Anyway, so scene two of the film. <laughs> so, you, so you have the opening credits. And one of the things about the opening credits is, some of them scroll like it's the end of the film. And... Mm. At the time that I saw it, everyone laughed at that because it was like, oh, it's like the end credits, isn't it? And it was just one of these things that you hadn't seen credits like that before either. Yeah. Then... Oh, no, we, it, just, we just haven't seen the film that has credits like that that came out before. Yeah, it did. That's right. Yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's the Goddard film where the, where the credits scroll at the beginning? Um, but then the screams of Mr. Orange bleed in to the credits yeah. and you realise something has happened. And that the surprise of that, when it cuts to the back of the car and he's been shot... And he's covered in blood, and it's all anything can what's happened, and it's just dropped you into this situation, and you have to put together where you are, and you realise that it's all happened, yeah. and that you've missed it. Was really quite good. quite electrifying at the time. It really was, and it, and I think that scene still stands up today because he kicks the baby chair when he realises what he's done there, and he says she has a baby, she has a baby, and it is one of those things where you're right, it is big raw acting, and it's like I don't care how how weird my face looks as I contort it into all these yeah. different things because I'm terrified and I'm bleeding out and this is how I imagine someone who has been shot would act. And it's all done with a single take and handheld and you know, whip panning back and forwards. And it's like, yeah, that's a pretty good way to get mm. into your film, isn't it? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah I'm going to follow up on that. But who shot Nice Guy Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> Larry, I'm gonna die alone. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting. The first two Tarantino films both have 
back seats getting covered in blood. Yeah, exactly. I thought mm. that too. Yeah. That's right. It is one of those things where it's like, yeah, these are these are the little styles that I will have because, of course, the opening credits of Pulp Fiction, they scroll as well. Uh, the music changes halfway through the opening credits, so you get the soundtrack changing as well, and it's like thinking, yeah, you... <laughs> you said you had to type. <laughs> and um, talk about, we're talking about music very quickly, uh, Hooked on a Feeling plays. Yeah. When they're driving Dude, to... And, yeah. and obviously that's Ooga, that. Jackal. And, and, and I completely forgotten that song was in the film and obviously that's a real pop culture thing now just because of Guardians of the Galaxy yeah, yeah. that's right yeah, yeah. 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 which is pop like, culture is eating is, is eating itself it's pop culture again will, well yes. that's the fear it's isn't pop it pop culture will eat itself yeah. well it is because it's like the diet's not that big it's no it's as big as we think it is it's yeah. a thing that's rule that's yeah. the thing all the stuff that fell into Tantino stuff, we, we should, pop culture is the fucking human centipede yeah. <laughs> in a circle yeah. um, like, that's yes there's a <laughs> sorry go on I hadn't picked out any of the dialogue by the way you said about you said the baby carriage in the back I'd missed that oh really oh, okay, yeah, I couldn't so... work out what the hell they were saying oh really yeah. that whole... she had a baby man she had a baby yeah. and she says that when they get into the warehouse the version that I have I completely missed it was that he's screaming in pain and he's screaming it's his agony and whatnot. and it's only when you see it revisited later on and you see he's just shot a woman it's like oh he's screaming in grief and it's like he's he's become he's become the criminal yeah, and it's she... like and that that makes the ridiculous shrill hysterical screams in the opening scene it puts a new fresh dimension on which I think is really really good it's, yeah indeed that's right yeah. which is sorry go on it's only an hour into the film that you find out he's a cop yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It's, yeah so, and it's literally before it goes into the final act which is just exactly right yeah which is one of the great things about so this film is that they switch it so you get all of the climax to begin with and then you get all of the build up and the way that, that that's placed, I think, is a master storyteller. He knows exactly where he needs to put stuff. I remember watching it with a friend once who said, but I don't know what's happening here. Yeah, all this stuff's happened, but they're just talking about what's going to happen next. But how have they got here? And it's like, trust the film, trust the film. Mm. And, and at the end, he was really impressed. So, oh, yeah, it all pieced together. And that was the thrill of the film, I think. That is also kind of like it's the misdirection thing, isn't it? It's like, well, actually, your, your story's so thin. Yep. In order to keep it interesting, you have to put it in different, you have to put it in different order. It's like... Um, that Rick and Morty thing from when they go to the Purge planet. Yeah. And he's saying, when a, the guy will give him shelter from the Purge horse as long as he will let him read him his screenplay. Yeah. Like, oh, jeez. <laughs> I kind of feel like the story was interesting at that point. That's when you should start telling the story rather than starting in the flashback. Isn't this also <laughs> the script that uh, the Chevy Chase is writing in? Funny Farm. Oh yes, that cropped up in Empire as well. <laughs> where it was, um, he's writing a script. I remember watching Funny Farm one Christmas. It's an alright film, but it has this amazing bit where he's writing the script and he goes to his wife and she reads it and then she turns the page and he says, oh, oh, I think you might have missed the joke on the first page. And she goes, where is it? So about halfway down just off the thing, it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> and then there's like a dissolve to her putting it down the final page. <laughs> and he says, so, so what do you think? And she bursts into tears. <laughs> Maybe I just wasn't clever enough to get it, but there are all these flashbacks in there, and they're and they're robbing a bank, and it's like, and it's like, uh, what? <laughs> what the fuck is? She's just read words of our dogs. The um, talking about no, sorry, and the the seamless segue of talking about scripts. Um, touching yeah. touching very quickly again on um, true romance and um, and natural born killers. Yeah, because obviously they both started out being the same film <laughs> and it's in like yeah, natural born killers yeah. and that's, it's so weird that it's the Badlands theme is used in true romance 
rather than natural born killers. <laughs> because natural born killers is true. It, it is Badlands. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, well, Badlands yeah. was the Badlands um, as satire. As, yeah, yeah. Natural born killers. Yeah. Sorry, was like I mean that just became something else when Oliver Stone got his hands on it. Um, but actually, I think it became a much more interesting film, even though I don't think it's better than what Tarantino would have done. But you read the Tarantino script, which is all flashbacks, and it just it's all over the place. The same with Reservoir Dogs, because that was written before Reservoir Dogs, and I think he was just experimenting with you know linearity or non-linear in his films. But Natural Born Killers is a film that has to just barrel through from A to Z. It's a film that just has to have that speed to it, and you can't be flashing back and forth. And that's, sort of, and that's the thing, I mean, because when I mean, True Romance... Natural Born Killers was originally being told by Clarence as I, I, I my, my, my initial thought was that one was going to be it was lit that true, uh, Natural Born Killers was going to be the second half of the story oh. of True Romance and that somehow Clarence and uh, Alabama would metamorphose into what became the uh, the Mickey Mallory. The, the Mickey and Mallory but no actually uh, Natural Born Killers is being told as a story within the structure of True Romance is it yeah as in that's how initially it was it was initially intended to oh, be wow. okay. which yeah and then he just sort of went oh that doesn't work separate those two scripts and sell them off which twice yeah. yeah which is which made him a lot of money he got three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for natural born killers which well, is not bad is it <laughs> not bad for morning's work no that's, that's right <laughs> i stand by my comment yeah. <laughs> so then we're into the warehouse uh, which is of course a mortuary and that's the that's the good thing about this film is that it's in a mortuary you have coffins just standing there and it's not enough for all of the characters but they are just standing next to coffins when they're talking about this job that's gone wrong and all the danger that's around them is that right and it's yeah because i was watching it i can't figure out what those things are the coffins, coffins. yeah oh, and he's sitting on a hearse um i wonder mr yeah, blonde yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sitting on which is a lovely on a hearse. lovely shot as well and that bit when they're talking when mr white and mr pink are talking in that toilet it's actually an embalming room because the fluid's got the hoses up yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. what well, the um and well, I think all the interior locations, well, pretty much all the interior locations, were in that building. As in the office um, is oh, really? in that building as well. And Freddie's flat, so Mr. Orange's flat, is upstairs. I really like Freddie's flat because the rooms are painted, the characters, aren't they? He's got a white room, he's got a blue room. Is it, you wanted to look around this flat, is, is there... Is there a pink room? <laughs> is, is there an orange room? It's just because you've got the ladder right in the middle of the set. Yeah. Just, they've just finished painting it. And, and that's... Sorry, Sorry the thing about the colours is obviously them all taking their names from colours is taken from um, uh, the taking of Pelham 123. Yeah. <laughs> more lifting, lifting, lifting. And but it's all lifting. A lot of heavy lifting in this one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only, and there's actually a line in it when, he, when Mr. Pink's like, well, are we are Mr. Purple. He's like, well, no, you can't be Mr. Purple because we're using that colour on another job. <laughs> and there's only... Uh, and I, sort of, yeah. I, sort of, I did a check and there's only one colour that's used in both um, uh, Reservoir Dogs and taking Pelham 123. And it's Brown, it's Mr. Brown, who is, of course, the Quentin Tarantino character. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing, you can, so many layers, so and, many layers. And, and so much of it could just be, like, it's, it's kind of what, I, what, I, what I watched, um, I watched, and this is going to go off you know, really far, I watched The Shining earlier in the week in IMAX, and that's the thing, like, you just end up reading, because there are so many interpretations and there's so much to it, and it's so, you end up kind of just assuming the director's omniscient. <laughs> Yeah, Indeed. but that's the thrill of it. It's what we're talking about with the, that sense of this film came with its own community. That the opacity of some of the film makes you lean in, and mm. because you're so into it, you draw your own elements out of it. And it's I think that's that is him putting something back. I think that is not just regurgitating stuff that's come before. It is it is a conversation. It is a you you, you do what look hateful eight and go Reservoir Dogs again in it, but now they're cowboys, and it's yeah. But that's the thing there is that I think Reservoir Dogs it was. He had all these things to say about the films that he loved, and and he was given something back. He was taking these things, thinking, yeah, there's 
a film called Take and Fellow Monty 3 and they all have colour-coded names so yeah I'll have that and I'll have that over here and I'll do this but what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot it like a Sergio Leone film so you get these amazing close-ups because it's a film that's like a large part of it is set in one place but it's shot like it's a Sergio Leone film mm. so you have this really really dynamic composition between the characters then you have these amazing close-ups there's that amazing close-up of Michael Madsen when he's looking over his glasses and it's like that's just your hero shot that's the shot that you would have that you liked, I'm sure, but it also shows just how unflappable you are, and that's the kind of thing that Sergio Leone was doing with Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West. Mr. White gets a lot of those shots too, with the camera tracking and Harvey Keitel kind of doing his his thousand yard stare, which which actually made, sort of made me think like, what did you do in Apocalypse Now? It was so bad they fired you because you can do that tormented and you know the opening scene of Apocalypse Now where in Martin, room, yeah. in the hotel room, it's like. How could you not do that scene? It's you. Yeah. That is you. It's just yeah. basically that. That's a really interesting scene when you know, when the camera pushes in and you just hear Mr. Pink and he's saying, well, everyone takes their chances and yeah, we'll just take him to a hospital and like, yeah, we'll dump him. And the camera pushes in on Mr. White because everyone thinks Mr. White's a really, really nice guy. But Tarantino said, actually, he makes one of the most selfish decisions in that moment because he says, he doesn't know anything about us. And it's Mr. White who chooses to say, he knows a little about me. Which means that he's kind of thinking we can't take him to hospital because I've told him stuff about me. Yeah, I think because that's I fucked up because I because I fucked up. Yeah, and so therefore I'm trying to be morally superior, and that's all done in that thing where it just there's a slow track to his face and you can see the cogs whirring as he thinks. No, it's we can't because yeah. I really like that as well. In fact, there's all sorts of bits of like how Mr. White is that makes it more interesting. The movie sort of he's doing the whole dad son thing. And it's like, I think the first thing he says, I can't take you to a hospital, like, seven minutes into the film. He's already made that decision because he knows, he knows about, yeah. I can't take you to a hospital. Mr. Pink later on says, well, we've got to take him to a hospital. And then once he knows his name, okay, well, we can't possibly take him to a yeah, hospital. Yeah. And it's, because the whole thing about him, Mr. Pink originally doesn't want to take Mr. Orange to the hospital because he doesn't want Mr. Orange to get into trouble. He's actually looking out for yeah, Mr. Yeah. Orange. And it's like, well, we'll take him to the hospital if he wants to go to the hospital. If he, all right, that. And yeah. It's really nice. And the fact that he's shot it like Mr. White is like the father to Mr. Orange, you're, you're absolutely right. It's completely undercut by the fact that it's entirely driven by selfishness and Mr. White is utterly out of his element and doesn't know a thing. I mean, that's the thing. It's a film that's ostensibly about professionals where every... And I think this is key every to Tarantino's... professional in the film. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is key to, Pink. to so many yes. of Tarantino's films is that it's about people who are really self-consciously cool but who fuck up. Yeah. I mean, it's the fact that you know it's um, it's Vic and Vin- it um, oh shit, uh, Jules like accidentally blowing the fucking hair brains out of Marvin yeah. in Pulp Fiction at a moment where they are so cool and so self assured, and it runs throughout so many of his films. The fact that he bumps off um, Kurt Russell in the Hateful Eight, and Kurt Russell seems to be, but he lets his guard down and he yeah. gets killed. And it's there with Schultz. It's there with in in uh, Django Unchained with this guy who seems to you know know everything that's going on and he's got the plan. And it's about these people who see, who are so utterly self-confident and then get completely destroyed. Yeah. I think it's also one of the things that is a strength to his films, which all the films that came afterwards that were trying to do this just missed out on because they were trying to do the coolest, most efficient, proficient, professional going. And so, well, no, that's not what he's doing here. He's doing... These are people who get what they want because they have it in themselves to chop someone's finger off or to put a gun in someone's face or something like that. That's that's as far as their skill set goes, and sometimes it will get them what they want. That's the thing. I think, and I, I kind of I tease this in conversation with you guys earlier, my, yeah. my universal reading of Tarantino, 
is and that's I mean that's what Tarantino does himself. It's Tarantino putting on the front of being cool, mm. and that all these actors are playing roles. You know, Schultz when he goes to Candyland. It's, so Schultz it, being the Christoph Waltz character, yeah, the Christoph Waltz character in Django Unchained. Yeah. And when you think about the fact that Tarantino is, and you know, he's, he's a hugely successful filmmaker, he is a kind of a failed actor. <laughs> in, terms, in terms of like, or, well, sorry. And, and, sorry, and I say that as somebody who will never have any. In terms of most of his film roles are in films he's made or films that he's got to be in because he's yeah. such a good director. Like, yeah, like they, they they Golden them. Girls is kind of the pinnacle of his career outside of stuff that he got through being <laughs> being a genius filmmaker. Yeah, that's what you're right. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. it is one of those and things where he's yeah. And Go I on. think I think. A lot of it is, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to psychoanalyze Quentin Tarantino. Is is that is that whole subconscious idea of like people failing in these roles and setting themselves up as cooler than cool and ultimately yeah. being undercut by circumstance? I like that a lot. Yeah, it's because great. I think my big my big problem with Quentin Tarantino's characters is they're all hateful, but they think they're cool, and it's like that's that's insufficient. And to be, comes <laughs> down to Harvey Keitel. It's one of the reasons why. Um, Harvey Keitel knows he's going to be identified. I think Mr. Pink says, well, they know your name, they know you're from this place, they know your skill set. And he says, well, what skill set is that? And it says that at the end, when no, he's no, going no, through it's it... Not, it's not your skill set. It's, it's, that's, I think, again, it all goes back to Scribble Comedy. <laughs> so he says they know... We all have theories. He knows, A, what you look like, and B, where you're from. C, what your talents are. Else. What, um, what your, what or D, do. what your specialty is. That's it, the specialty. And then when it comes to say, what the specialty is, it's beating up the bank manager. It's beating yeah. up the guy. And, but so, that's, and he talks about torturing and cut the finger off. And yet when he tortures the cop, that's not how he tortures the cop. So his I whole specialty is that like he can intimidate yeah, that's the truth a out of you. He'll tell me if he's wearing ladies' underwear after you cut the first finger off. And then when he's beating up the cop, he's just punching the cop in the face saying, Who's the rat? Who's the rat? <laughs> and the cop said, I have no idea. And it's like, no, the cop absolutely knows who the cop, who the rat is. It's that guy over there. But he doesn't say anything even after his ears I mean, cut the cop off. shouldn't know. Like the threat of being the cop burned shouldn't know who the <laughs> fucking rat is. I know, it's crazy. But even so, it's like, you're an awful torturer. And torturing is easy. <laughs> and that's the, and that's an interesting thing. You're thinking, is that... That's your specialty. Is that to do with like the budgetary limitation? That it's obviously, yeah, you need prosthetics for that sort of thing? Or is it that he knew well if I have a finger chopping and an ear cutting, people um, are going to think I've got people are, because people walked out of this film in droves. I'm not and just, you don't just, see not anything. just people. I mean, who, who, where's, where's Craven? Craven walked out of it? Where's uh, Craven walked out saying I decided that this was a film that was just glorifying the act of torture and and it's like and this is from the guy who did Last House on the Left which is not the best film cool in the world it's cool when I do it it's cool when I do it because I'm because I'm making a statement about the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam it's like yeah I, I know you are but, but it still is just a torture film and it's because the scene cool because it's done through being cool and it's was... done through the um, to get your blood boiling <laughs> there was uh, there's a reference to, there's a comparison to Hitchcock that's that's made in terms of it's you have a line of black comedy and then you have something quite shocking, and the two slip between each other. So yeah, so Frenzy, of course, I'm you know, not a huge fan of, but that is always playing with black comedy in terms of like, oh look at this, and now you're rooting for the bad guy, and oh he's going to get away with it, and, and that kind of stuff. And then you have a really really catchy song put on top as well, and suddenly you're into this scene, and he's you know, dancing around, and uh, he's about to burn someone alive. Going, going back to sort of the idea of um, uh, Freddy and when he when he's practicing in front of the mirror and you see in his apartment he's got he's got like the Silver Surfer poster up on the wall and at one point I'm and Tarantino's a big fan of comic books and, 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 and 
and again, I think that's the idea of that's the whole geek thing, and that's the whole him putting on the role of this tough guy, like Tarantino himself. But then ultimately, when he tries to do a carjacking, he gets shot in the gut by a fucking civilian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, he a... gets killed by somebody who's not like meant to. She, she's not. Meant he's to... a cop. Yeah. And yeah. Like... But the thing there that I quite like is the fact that this is a film that has no women in it. Apart from a woman who gets pulled out of her car by her hair through the window, which again was one of those just weird bits of violence that you weren't used to seeing in in films like that, and it's like that's just so odd that you would pull someone out of the window rather than open the door. But women are just underestimated in this film because not really in this film, so therefore it's it's a real blindside when you think because you just assume he's been shot by a cop the whole film, and no, it's just this woman when they try to carjack her, she shoots him. How do you square that? And, with- and, Sorry, and she shoots him once. That's the other thing about this film, is that the tone of violence in this film and the, and the tone of pain is what I think turned a lot of people off. So when, they, so when you get to the ear-cutting scene, you think it's going to be so much worse because there's mm. so much blood in this film. Because I, you know, how many times has he been shot? He's been shot once, yeah. but he's bled out. Yeah. I mean, they were going to do, they were going to do like a, a um, blood spring from the year they were going to do a whole thing with that but they decided it actually kind of detracted from from that moment well, well they filmed it didn't they yeah, and it they, looks yeah. And it, it, yeah it looks like a horror film moment well, it takes, so it takes me out of the scene the fact that he's, he's, <laughs> he's not bleeding he has his ear cut off and he doesn't bleed after it's in the scene you've still got it it's there saying well and then there's Tim Roth who's whispering I said, wow, that cop hears really well for a guy who's got one ear. Oh, indeed. But, it, but then you're thinking, well, yeah, it's not bleeding. It was a low-budget film and that would be like no, another prosthetic to put no, in there. Totally, and totally, I actually totally. think that the, the, that the makeup around the ear does look pretty good considering that it's a uh, you know, low-budget film. I'm thinking that does look like the inside of your head. <laughs> and it looks like if you were to have petrol put on it, which he does have it, that would it really fucking sting. sting. That would sting somewhat. <laughs> Um, but also I think it's one of those films because there was just in terms of the way it lays you know it flashes back and forwards and also the way that I and yeah, the audience that I first saw it with completely forgot that Mr Orange was in that room because he passes out and he just isn't referred to yeah. for about 20 minutes so you're watching that scene and everyone was when that scene came on and he yeah, starts dancing around everyone knew that, that this was the scene that everyone was walking out at, and there was nervous laughter in that original screening and I was thinking, am I going to be able to stand this? And then when it does its self-conscious pan away, you're thinking, oh, that's the best way to do it. That's really, really good because you kind of let us off the hook a bit. Mm. And this is entertainment at the end of the day. And then he goes and gets the petrol and everyone's like, oh no, we thought it was the ear cutting, but it's the petrol's going to burn him now. How's he going to get out of it? And then when he just explodes and you suddenly realise Mr. Orange is there and he's shooting, there was such a relief and such a real, it just won the audience because it was like, thank you for not making us see him burn this guy alive. Mm. But on the other hand, Gone. <laughs> it's nick of time bullshit. It's like the worst, the worst narrative trope in the world. It's such peril. But in the nick of time, I'm saved. And it's just. Uh, but when it's done well, it's such though, a shame he didn't wake up 15 seconds earlier, isn't it? But, but when it's done well, well, though, yeah, but yeah, absolutely. It's a, and it's all about oh. suspense. Added to movie. Or maybe he was holding it off went. on shooting him. Until the, until the because he's like okay he's just cuts fucking ear off this guy's going to survive it we're going to lie we're going we're we're to we're gonna lie here and bleed it's, I think there's a deadline he says to <laughs> yeah, yeah. off. but at the point at which he starts pouring the fucking petrol and he's like no he's actually about to fucking kill this guy I'm going to have to shoot Mr. Blonde even though it means I'm going to have to explain later on why I fucking shot it oh well the, yeah yeah there is that, there is that. He's, he's trying to avoid having to do it and he's hoping that Mr. Blonde isn't actually going to kill this cop and that he's not going to have to fucking... Well, that's a really interesting theory. There's a really interesting... That is really... That, that's Brexit thinking. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure any minute now it's going to be fine. Any minute now he's going to stop talking well, to him and he's going to let him go. There'll be a transition period. It'll, it'll be just the same as normal. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. 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 
Yeah. But what about remails? I don't know. <laughs> but it is a film that you kind of think, well, everyone here is operating from a certain self-centeredness. So that actually holds a bit of water in terms of, I can't explain why I would have killed you know, one of my own to save a cop. So therefore, I am going to hold off. Hold a certain amount of water. <laughs> I'd also like the way that Mr. Blonde walks back the entire length of the warehouse, which apparently was because Michael Madsen so didn't want to die, because he so liked the character, and thought there was more to this character that he could do, so therefore he wanted like a sequel. And there was going to do like a prequel um, um, yeah, at the, the Vega Brothers, Brothers. Yeah, with him and John, and that would have been an interesting film. Shit. But the thing there is that John, <laughs> there, there John, <laughs> John Travolta's cuddly and Vic Vega's a psycho thinking, well, this isn't good. It would be from Dust Till Dawn. It would just uh, be from Dust Till oh, Dawn. And it's like, probably good that he didn't make that. But, uh, but yeah, that's the reason why he walks back the entire left because he wanted like a proper good you know, death scene and said, I should be hanging off coffins and stuff. And it's like, no, you just, you stumble back and then you fall back. So you're right so near the doors so they see him when he comes in. You could argue that if, yeah, I mean, obviously Dusk Dawn, um, the character of Richie in Dusk Dawn has slightly more rapey subtext to him. Uh, but could you argue, so you could... But subtext? If, yeah, sorry, <laughs> he subtext. He, read, he does, uh, I, was about, I was trying to find a way to phrase it. No, it's not so, it very much becomes text. The film becomes like... Super text. Whatever is above text, yeah. Um, and so you can argue that in that in um, From Dust Till Dawn, Tarantino got to be Mr. Blonde. Yeah. And, 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 and this, I'm kind of thinking... He's working his way through the character. Yeah, he's working, if he's working his way... And and well, and obviously he's in a scene with Winston with with, um, with uh, the wolf with yeah. Winston Wolf. Yeah. Is he called Winston Wolf in the film, or am I just getting that from those adverts? No, he is called Winston Wolf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, I yes, just indeed. <laughs> I wonder what Tarantino got paid for the advert. So these are adverts. Well, does he does he does he does he have, do you have to be paid for the advert? He could say you have used my character there because they have used his character. They also use the opening shot of his car pulls up. Oh, yeah. This is a series of insurance adverts that Harvey Keitel made for Aviva, was it the UK company Aviva, in which he basically plays Winston Wolf and. He fixes problems with insurance, and presumably it's just another grandkid's inheritance job that he's doing or something. Because it's like, do you really need this money? Julia, Winston Wolf. Yeah. You were on your way to Marsh's hen party when you took a hit from a couple of wise guys. Let nightmare. About your car, does it smoke? Need a new wing? Make a noise? Uh, yeah, all of that. Okay, call Direct Line. They'll arrange a higher car. But won't have to wait for mine to go in for repair. Not with Direct Line. Oh, hey, what about us? Are you with Direct Line? No. Then on your bike, Buster. <laughs> yeah, on your bike, Buster. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I think this is a classic film. I think it's a five-star movie. And it is a classic piece of cinema, and I love watching this film. This film came out in the early 90s, and there was um, a shocking murder of a three-year-old boy called James Bolger. And even more shocking was that it was a couple of 11-year-old kids, I think it was, who'd done it, and they'd done it in like a terrible way. And the judge had said, had asked the police, do we think that violent films have had anything to do with this? And the police investigated that and said, no, there is no evidence that they were influenced by violent films. But then when the judge was sentencing, he said, you are completely accountable for your own actions, but I do think that violent films have influenced the way that you think. And the media or the tabloid press just leapt on this, and it was just their cause. It was their cause for about a year to get 18 videos, refused a certificate on video, so you'd only be able to see them if you're an adult at the cinema. It was all completely ridiculous. And Child's Play 3 was the film because... 
it looked like one of the dads had rented it, but he didn't live with the son, and it was. But they said that the kids had seen it, and also it just had a cover of of a killer doll that looked like a killer kid, and that just fit all the front pages. So Reservoir Dogs was caught up in all of this because lots of films were held back from being released on video, so you couldn't get the film for you know for a year and a half, other than seeing it at the cinema. And there were some other films that were held back as well. I can't think. I think what they were now. But Reservoir Dogs was the oh Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. I think was one that was held back, which meant that it was like, well, I can't see Reservoir Dogs, but I, I I need to see it as much as possible. So I went to see it a lot at the cinema, and then a friend of mine got it on Laserdisc. So I watched it around here when I used to go home from university, and suddenly realised I'd seen this film twenty times. Oh, God. <laughs> it was like oh, I'd watched it so I've gone to the cinema so many. It's the film I've seen most at the cinema. And it's like, I don't feel like I've watched this film 20 times because it's still so fresh. And I'm watching it again for this podcast. It was like, I just love the rhythms of this film. I love uh, the confidence of the storytelling. I love the way that you will flash back at just the right time to tell Mr. White's story and just the right time to tell Mr. Blonde's story to get you out of the warehouse and just to, to, to drop a bit more information that you'll need for the next thing that's coming along. And we flip it. So it's all, it's all climax and then you get the setup at the end. I just really respond to the way that you are telling this and the way that you're framing it and all the actors and what they're doing. But Ian, I think there's a, a section here, because you described it like a series of as three one-act plays. Yeah. I don't get that. I get that for Inglorious Bastards, which is eight one-act plays that kind of loosely link together, but not really. But why do you think this is a series of one-act plays? Well, I think it, I've, I, I've only seen this film three times. I saw it when it came out, so 25 years ago. I saw it a couple of months ago when you suggested we do this and I saw it yesterday and I have to say I enjoyed it most first time and, and then but the third time I, I picked, got a lot more out of it than I did the second one but the, sec- the third time I was watching you're going through saying okay well very very simply it's an hour and a half long it's three half hour stories the first one is leading up until the, the diner scene the, the screaming arrival at the warehouse and Mr White and Mr Pink working out what they're going to do it's, it's a really swift half hour with things constantly change and you look at I think Mr Pink arrives uh, in the warehouse exactly 15 minutes into that so you've got it like really nice bite sized chunks and it's a really wonderful sizing okay things are getting a bit slow let's throw another character in and it's like that it, it keeps it really moving about the halfway point that's when Mr Blonde appears yeah. and Mr Blonde is in there for half an hour he dies about an hour into the film so you've you've got his flashback you've got him dealing with um, the gangsters up until the torture scene and then he's taken off the table and then the final half hour is you reveal that Tim Roth is the cop and he goes into his commode story and then he goes into the climax of the film and it seems to break down quite quickly and I think one of the reasons why I'm quite keen to break it down that quickly is because I, I find the Michael Madsen character really really boring and I find the handling of it just highlights what I think is lacking in the film I, I think the film lacks heart I think the film lacks empathy and I think the film mistakes... I think the film already has a, mis- a problem confusing uh, cool with merit and depth. And I think it has an extra problem in that middle section where it mistakes cruelty for cool. And there's elements in there which are so cack-handed and so ham-fisted. It's like, in the opening sequence of the diner, um, two of the characters start talking about Kay Billy, hmm. don't they? And it's Mr. Or is it Mr. Pink and... Nice Eddie. Eddie. A nice Gary talking about it. And you go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then an hour later, you've got Michael Madsen saying, did you listen to Kay Billy? It's like, really? Really? So you like this ridiculous radio station as well? 
And he starts. It's, 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 it's but of course he does because they're all Tarantino. No, well, yeah, but, 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 but that's the rest of his building. But I kind of thought that was quite a nice callback no. to this thing where you've got this very, very almost like a yeah, domestic setting where they're all just gossiping and they're talking about this, and no, then it comes back and it's no, like, there's, no, no. The reason, why not? The reason why is because it's like that's the shallowness of your imagination. You've only got five frames of reference, and you're all on the same page all the time because you all agree with the same thing. And then Michael Madsen gets to think, oh, do you like it? It's my own personal favourite. And it's like, it just took it. I couldn't give a fuck <laughs> what your personal favourite anything is. You psycho. Boring, boring folk. But in that end, I'm not entirely sure your face to really care either why he's No, I think... But it's one of those things because he is... That whole thing meter. is like a power play between no, the two of them. It's, it's the meter, and it's is the it, meter if you see the author behind it all the time. The fact they've all got the yeah. same fucking haircut. And it's like, yep, they all comb their hair, and it's like... You all look the same because you all think that there is only one kind of cool and you're all doing it. But I think it's, that's one of those things where he did no research for this. It all comes from movies. But you're thinking, well, gangsters will all have the same sort of hair. Like, you know, if you look at like a Scorsese film, it's all that thing where... And the thing where they're obsessively combing their hair back and they're doing it over and over again when they're talking to get their cool back after everything has gone to and, shit. And there's elements of that that work really well. When Tim Roth leaves his flat to, to meet up with the guys in the car... And he talks to himself in the mirror and says, they don't know, they don't know, you're cool, you're cool. And it's like, yeah, that's reassuring. And then he goes back in and he puts the wedding ring on. And it's like, that, that is a really good character note. You've got mm. a ball of change. I'm married. My cover has married. It's like, really? Because there's no evidence of that at all. You've just gone back to put the ring on. It's like, that's actually a character beat that makes sense, that feels original, that feels like it came from a character. Michael Mads. And, and the weird thing is, because the third time I was watching it, it's like, there is depth to Michael Madsen's character he is in need and he's bruised and he's broken by whatever happened to him in prison and Joe and nice guy Eddie are helping him they're getting him back in the straight they're getting him back with a job and, and then, but he, he also wants to he wants to really work okay well we can get him involved on this he's been good luck for us they are genuinely helping a guy who is who's, who's, who's down and out who's done the four years in prison yeah. Yeah. And it's like there is a sense that there are genuine affection there but it's expressed through this quintessence of ugliness. It's like that whole, it gets, that fight gets gay and homophobic incredibly quickly. And not as gay and homophobic as what, as what happens afterwards when they talk about the fight. Uh, <laughs> Which of course, yeah. everything always has to be said in Tarantino film. So they, I mean... As in, like, yeah, we can't a, really quote it. We can, yeah, well, well, we, we can. can. Like, let's save that for the next part because I think we're going into the flaws of the film. Um, and we need to talk about the use of language in this Could film. Could you argue that one of the failures... I guess it depends whether or not you buy, you, buy into the, you buy into the reading that I posited, that they're all pretending, that they are all essentially, to one extent or another, playing dresser. Yeah. And, and the fact that... And it's interesting that Tarantino wanted to cast himself as Mr. Pink, Pink. who is the only professional, hmm. when the fact is that, you know... Yeah. The fact is that he's the one who's created all these guys so that he can give himself the line... Surrounded by actors who arguably have a lot more experience than him going, am I the only goddamn professional around here? I yeah. think it's really... See, again, I like the fact that nobody likes Mr. Pink. Mm. None of the other characters like Mr. Pink because he doesn't tip and talks too fast and he's a nervy little twitchy guy. And yet, everything he says is correct. He gets the diamonds, he gets out, he says, we've got to get out now. Yeah. It was a, he's the one who says it was a setup. He's the first one who brings all that. He is the one who survives and runs off with diamonds. But then gets like, arrested. Oh, does he get arrested? Yeah, you hear him get arrested at the end. Oh, okay. Um, it's so it's it's I, I like that, and yet I, it, for me it's they also give him some of the most 
repellent racist dialogue. I it, it takes me out of the film. I can't I can't enjoy it. I can't enjoy that. K Billy Super Sounds of the Seventies Weekend just keeps on coming with this little ditty that reached up to twenty one in May of nineteen seventy. The George Baker selection, Little Green Bag. And we're back. Not sure how this is going to cut around, so I'm just going to say that we had a short break there, and we are back to pick up our discussion of Reservoir well, Dogs. I think we broke on Ian saying that why he couldn't get into Tarantino, why there was always that distance from him. And actually, it was a good point that you were talking about the emotional damage of Mr. Blonde, and that he is an emotionally damaged character, which of course he is because he tortures someone, and you don't do that if, <laughs> if you're healthy. But it's interesting that you're coming at it from that angle, because it's, to be honest, maybe a more interesting angle from... Than, yeah, from which I view the film, which is as a really kinetic and dazzling piece of formal storytelling in terms of how I'm going to move my pieces around. And I don't get into the emotion of Mr. Blonde. I get into the I get into the suspense of a man who has got another man tied to a chair and, and how he's gonna get out of it. I get into that kind of you could say the Hitchcockian you know, mechanics of of a suspense setter, but it's interesting that you're that you're coming at it from that, and then you find it's failing. Well, I, I, I get that, Robert. I don't think it was entirely necessary to tie you into the chair. Right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you tear it, off it, the duct it, tape it, so you can does, say something? Does, <laughs> you tie me to a chair in your dream, you better wake up. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, God, that was good. I think I'm probably leaning into it too much, um, uh, but it's, it seems to be, you were talking earlier about him doing the Robert Mitchum yeah. impression, and he does do a Robert Mitchum impression. The whole sort of, the head is just cocked to one side he's looking up he's doing a whole Princess Diana thing mm. but he's, he's this big bulky sweaty over the hill guy and he he looks he looks like a, a broken dog who will go savage and it's I think it's really interesting that um, Joe says at the end I was 100% sure about everyone apart from Mr. Orange it's like well no you weren't because Mr. Blonde is a lunatic and you put him in that situation, so you know you, you, you that was a mistake. I yeah. am, in, I'm in, and that's one of the things I know that you said that you, the, you didn't think the um, Mr. Blonde flashback works entirely. That hit the whole setting up. I think you need that in order to establish that they don't expect him to go psycho. The, that and, and and that's the thing. It does kind of create this weird tension in the character. You're like, how you know that scene both sets up the idea of yeah, you've that's why how Miss Blonde ended up on the job. And in, even though it turns out he's a psycho, you're kind of doing him a favour. But also, how did you not know he was a psycho? How did you not know the probability was that if anything went wrong, he was going to turn around and start capping people? Well, I think, it, I think it then goes back to Ian's point that they owe him. He's done four years inside, and it wasn't the four years that the characters in Goodfellas do, where they are living in their own little space and they're getting fresh lobsters delivered. He is doing hard time with hardened criminals, and they are sending him a care package every month, which yeah. could be like you know a couple of steaks or like a couple and like a six pack or something like that. I know they're making jokes about it, and I don't know. I don't think the film necessarily encourages this reading. Do you think it could be most? Do you think he was getting raped in prison? So when nice guy does bring all that stuff up, he's like, Aah. "Can we get onto that in just a second? Because I just want to talk about one of the things I think that's put a pin in prison. In prison, yes, put a pin in prison, rape, <laughs> and we'll come back to that in just a second. Because one of the things that I think that scene does do really well is it shows that Nice Guy Eddie actually knows what he's doing. In terms of, he's not just a goofball, because the opening scene in the diner, he is a goofball, and he's got his shell suit on, and he looks a bit silly, and he's got like wiry red hair, and he's overweight, and he's like a bit schlubby, and he's not yeah, given the call of his suit. And then he's on the phone, and he's saying, like, yeah, okay, so what did Daddy say? And that's what he wants to tell him. Uh. And then you get the flashback 
And he's the one that says, it's fine, Vic. We're going to set you up so you've got problems with your parole officer and you have to have a curfew that you need to do and he's going to come and check on you to make sure that you're doing this really, really shit job. We'll just make you um, a dog worker. But you have to go off and you have to do deliveries elsewhere. So therefore, so you'll get like a paycheck, but you're not going to do anything. And I'll go down there and we'll get you set up with Matthew the Foreman and all this kind of stuff. But he just has this whole plan. It's like, okay, so you are in this world. You can actually do this as well then. And I think that's an interesting beat for that character. Do you remember the name of the, of the parole worker? Seymour Scagnetti. Yeah. Who, of course, and of course there's, that's not the only time a Scagnetti appears. Yeah, in, I couldn't remember what though. Uh, Natural Born Killers. Yeah. There's a uh, James oh, Scagnetti who's right. played by Tom Sizemore. Oh, another, yeah, troubled... <laughs> and they were yeah, and they were going to be brothers. They were you know the Scagnetti brothers. It was although oh, like right. I read, I read another because there was the thing that there were some really really interesting think pieces coming out from people who were looking at this and trying to break the code of what Tarantino was doing. And you can mm. say it's Room Two Three Seven again with like yeah, just seeing things that are not there. But it was like, are they brothers or is it that in this role in this world, if you're an annoying agent of the law, your name is Scagnetti. <laughs> and if you're like a cool criminal, your name will always be vague or that kind of stuff. Was, Ta- like... was Tarantino the first guy doing the expanded universe? <laughs> let's get on to I that mean, as like a yeah. thing afterwards, because that's a whole other thing. Okay, yeah. so let's... No, I think so, definitely. In fact, I think you can compare that with Kevin Smith and his view of universe. Yeah, and yeah. even down to the fact that they've, got, they've all got their brand of cigarettes. But yeah. it's, um... That is a really interesting point that brings us up to what's happening now with cinema. But at some point, we have to dive into the problematic no, things just, about... Go just, on, sorry, on. Just before that point, I think the, the, what the cop says just before he gets tortured, I think this is really good. Because he, he gets... Um, say goodbye to Mr. White and whatever, nice guy, they drive off, and he um, blonde comes back in and says, alone at last, and it's that eerie, now you're in trouble. And then the cop says, but I already told your boss, I don't know anything. And it's that point, he says, he's not my boss. And I think that's the kind of nice power thing where Blonde is always trying to play it like I'm the big brother to nice guy Eddie. Mm. But actually, the casual observer is saying, yeah, bit... well, he's the boss and you're the thug. And he's not my boss. I don't have a boss. And it's like... Yeah, it's, nobody it's, tells me what to do. Yeah, you absolutely do. Yeah, you're that's absolutely. right. You're, you're, everything you've got here is on charity. And then, yeah, that is like an interesting point. And I always thought that was like a nice thing that, that he just... He gets, he, a nice fuck he gets you wounded by that, yeah, yeah, yeah so absolutely. completely by accident. So like, yeah. even even the boss said that, yeah. and it's like, look, the higher authority here is saying that I don't know anything. Yeah. So yeah, so the first use of the N word in this <laughs> film <laughs> comes thirty five minutes and twenty six seconds in, and I and, think, and luckily Tarantino never used it again. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily, it's Mr. Pink that says it. Hey, look, you two assholes, calm the fuck down. Hey, come on, wake up. What are we on a playground here, huh? Am I the only professional? Fucking guys who act like a bunch of fucking niggers, man. You working niggers, huh? Just like you two. Always saying they're going to kill each other. When he says, I'm acting like a professional and you guys are acting like a bunch of N-words and not going to say the word. At the time, and I think there is an argument still, that these are scumbag criminals. And this is how they talk. No. It's not enough? That absolutely isn't enough. Because uh, Tarantino does it in Pulp Fiction and And he's supposed to be a civilian. And it's like, you can say, oh, he's talking big because... And that's a problem. And you need to go back to say, well, I think he's... Bonnie. Jeez, we're in the birds. Yeah, we'll turn this back into Mario. You might not even hear that, but a flock of seagulls, Pulp Fiction reference, has just has just flown overhead and squawked. And, and that's the thing, I, I think Bonnie's supposed to be a person of colour in, in Pulp Fiction anyway. And you, you can sort of well, do all this she's stuff. She's meant to be played by Pam Greer. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, you can sort of say this thing, oh, you know, it's just, it's, uh, we, we're all just guys, we talk, we don't mean it, we're not really racist. It's like, no, 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 no. You're doing it, you're trying to get a shock value. It's because you're a 
child writing what complicated uh, it, if you took, if you took it out of so the films to me. would it be missed of course it and would. is it there in the films that have influenced this no and no. it's uh, I thought that but was it's a Jew reference it's a lot of sort of like um, Jews you obviously use as a, as, a, as a racist epithet in this film and in other because he's films. once in this film yeah but it's used at the very beginning of the yeah. film do you know what these chicks make they make shit don't give me that she don't make enough money she can quit I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. That is an offensive line that you've written there. And it's like, okay, there are certain parts of this film that haven't aged very well. But at the time of the film, people were saying, in Reservoir Dogs, they are criminals, they are scumbags, they are using this. Pulp Fiction, we are supposed, they are supposed to be more cuddly, yet they're still using this word. But you know what's on my mind right now? It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. It's the dead nigger in my garage. And in true romance there's a whole speech about this word here's a fact i don't know whether you know or not sicilians were spawned by niggers this word is suddenly his favorite piece of ammo to use and what is the obsession with this word and it's interesting because it's like, yeah, I have a problem with it. It doesn't spoil my enjoyment of Reservoir Dogs. I, it would be interesting if it was taken out what you would put in there, if anything at all. So the flashbacks to Mr. Blonde, when they wrestle, so Nice Guy O.D. wrestles on the floor with Mr. Blonde and then says... Daddy, did you see that? What? The guy got me on the ground, he tried to fuck me. You wish. You sick bastard, Vic. You tried to fuck me in my father's office. Look, Vic, whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own home, go to it. Don't try to fuck me. I mean, I, I don't think you're that way. I like you a lot, buddy, but I don't think you're that way. Listen, if I was a butt cowboy, I wouldn't even throw you to the posse. No, you wouldn't. You'd keep me for yourself. You know, four years fucking punks up the ass, you'd appreciate a piece of prime rib when you say it. might break you in, nice guy, but it'd make you my dog's bitch. Ain't that a sad sight, daddy? Man walks into prison, a white man walks out talking like a fucking nigger. You know what? I think it's all that black semen been pumped up your ass so far, and now it's back into your fucking brain. It's coming out your mouth. Eddie, you keep talking like a bitch. I'm gonna slap you like a bitch. Come on, man! Right, 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 right. I'm sick of it. I bought you. Sit down. What is the intent of this? I think if you and how does it look now? Because I remember when this was just hyperbole. Like, I, how we meant to? How we meant to? I think my question in that is how are we meant to feel about what he's saying. Yeah, see, I... When the film came out, it was just supposed to be shock. It was just supposed to be shock value. Yeah, the... And the shock value was the imagery of having so much semen pumped into you that it comes out of your mouth. And you're right, that is, that is the, uh... a teenage <laughs> reference. You're, sorry. We've, uh, we've taken the pin out of the prison room. <laughs> we have taken the pin out of the prison <laughs> room. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, but you're right, that is teenage shock value. It's like, what is the most graphic image I can think of? And at the time, I saw it at the cinema, there were laughs and gasps because it was so offensive. Well, it was offensive in, in like a funny way. No one was walking out because they kept saying the N-word when this film was released. No one was really commenting on it. It's only when it then went into his other films where people were saying, you know, you know, he uses this word a lot. People were walking out at the ear slicing scene that you don't see. Mm. And as a historical document now, this is really interesting in how we regard the use of racial epithets in films, particularly from a white director. I think it's, yeah, especially from a white director. And I think it's worth pointing out that we are three white middle class yep indeed it's um it's, it's like we, we we don't come from a very diverse perspective on this and it's there's the sensitivities that we're not privy to and whatnot but it's still 
I was working class to begin with. I ain't gonna. You went to university. I worked my way. You I worked all the way, way to university. I worked my way up. I worked at McDonald's when I was at university. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just rings like a teenager. I think we've. I think we spent an, enough time, at, you know, at our university, seeing people who were trying to ape trying to pretend that they were of, of, of a more working class background, that they had sort of like struggled more. And the way that comes out is kind of an ugliness of language. So forgive me if I'm not pretty, so pretty pleased with the team on top. It's kind of like, that is, it's just, it's coming from a place of privilege and not recognising the sort of like damage that it does. And it is riven in the film. I mean, it is a film where the only woman is a waitress who's off shot and someone who gets, and a woman who gets shot to death. And well, no, there's a woman that gets pulled out of the car as well. But it is that, that whole thing, with, if he talks about the thing, and again, it's like, when he describes Joe as, you remember the Fantastic Four? And it's like, again, I'm bored with your Marvel comic references in this tiny universe where everyone's on the same nerd geek level. You remember the Fantastic Four? Oh yeah, with that uh, invisible bitch and uh, flame on and shit. The invisible bitch. It's like <laughs> that's women in your films, isn't it? It's like, yep, invisible bitches. That's that's who we. It's like it is done with such disdain, and it doesn't add anything. All it does it, is highlight. It's it, 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 done with disdain. It's, 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 it's done it's, with just. Again, it's just cool. It's the invisible chick wouldn't be cool, but the invisible bitch gives him an edge. I think you're right. I think he's using language in that film without quite realising the power of it. And I think that's because that came from the time that film was made. Because no one was talking about the fact that he was using the N-word so much and that this actually could be seen as really offensive. And it's, it's, it's derogatory and you're talking about women in this way. And I think he was, it was just seen as crime cinema at that point. And it was coming out of things like you know, Goodfellas. And Goodfellas is, of course, a much better film and a much more responsible film in its use of that sort of language. And when it's used in Goodfellas, which it is used a couple of times, there's a guy who says, um, when Henry Hill steals the truck and yeah, the truck driver's in on it and he runs back into the cafe and says a couple of end words, just stole my truck. And it's like, that's good, you're making a point because it was actually an Italian gangster who did that, but you are using... <laughs> it's a completely different racial stereotype. No, 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 well, yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah, good book. It's, <laughs> but it's true. It's kind of like, yeah, that was, that's what happened. They were saying, like, yeah, they would always yeah, yeah, blame yeah, yeah, yeah. it yeah. on black people because it's like, well, because the police wouldn't just always believe that it was that. And, and I was about to ask a question, I think I've actually just answered it in my head, um, about Jackie Brown, mm. about the film Jackie Brown, in which, the, in which it was always a female protagonist, but he took... The young Leonard character who's white in the book Rum Punch and turned it into a black woman, mainly I think so we can cast Pam Greer, which is good enough for it's good reason to do anything. Yep. Um, and that's the thing, I think it all comes down to cool. He's yeah. totally willing to have black characters and, and totally willing to have strong female characters as long as they are cool. Yeah. As long as they feed into Well, well Pam Greer isn't cool in that film, but he loves her from the films in which she was super cool, like Foxy Brown and Coffee um, and The Big Bird Cage and all those films from the 70s. But she is... The thing that I like about her in that film is that she's an ordinary shape. She did not slim down for Jackie Brown. She is shot as a middle-aged flight attendant. Because that's interesting. Because Jackie Brown, you could say, is arguably the film in which that word would come from those characters more than his first two films... But that's the film where everyone just leapt on him because I think of the first two films and also True Romance, the speech from that. And Spike Lee was saying, why is he so obsessed with this word? Mm. And yeah, watching, as I was saying, there's a, on YouTube, there's an episode of Film 98 with Barry Norman and they, and they have a discussion about 
the criticism that he's got for using the N-word so much. But they don't use the N-word, they use the actual word. And it's odd to see that. Because you think, okay, you are having a discussion about a film and you are using this word and there is an argument for the fact that you are saying this word, particularly as you get into the whole ER and A ending of the word and, and the difference that that means. That's one argument I don't buy into. It's no, like, no, no, no. It's the it. same word. It sounds very, very similar. No, no, it's, not the um, same. it's not the same word. It's, it's, the word is not just the, it's the sound that it makes. It's the intent behind it. That's it's right, how yeah. it's used. the audience it's said with. And it's, it's the context. It's absolutely context. You can't take it out of it. For me, it's kind of like interesting that in those days, remember when Dave Allen said fuck on BBC? And mm. it's like, oh my God, questions in the house. You would never hear that. And it's like, we don't have a problem with fuck now, but we have a problem with the special right. sensitivities. And in many ways, that's, that's fabulous. It does make you think that there are all sorts of things that we overlook now that will be really ugly in a couple of years' time. But for me, it was, it was cretin. It's like, cretin is a... Is a word that it's incredibly insensitive it's a horrible word with a very bad history and it's like this is stuff that we overlook now we won't always overlook more, it more on we will scale, get yeah, all those for well, well cretin was specifically for it's it's a, a, to, yes, um, the, the iodine overdose in the watermark but it's like it's mm. um yeah it's but, it's a document of its time and it won't always be this way and that will be an ugliness that gets lost as we will become better i was a huge fan of preacher comic at the same time that the tarantino stuff was kicking off and I love the Preacher comic, and it's, um, it's, it's, it's obviously on Amazon streaming now with a lot of the rough edges sort of like Bird Off. Because in that comic, the worst thing, the most ridiculous crime that could be befall a man was that he would be raped by another man. Mm. And that is not just the awesome, horrible threat, but it's also the punchline to every third joke. The gay panic. Yeah. The gay panic thing, absolutely. And it's like, that's dated so badly. And perhaps from my position of privilege, it didn't occur to me at all at the time. It was like, no, 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 yes, that is very funny. Yeah, yeah. And, it's like kind of, and there is also like an element of it that it's like, well, it comes from deliverance. It comes from the fact that it is... Um... After a certain point, you do get removed from it because it, in deliverance, it's really quite impactful. It's now become a pop culture reference. And That's right, yeah. I think it's telling that... Which is Tarantino. It's like, kind of, it just takes things as a pop well, culture The first reference. film that Tarantino can recall seeing in the cinema is Deliverance. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, there you go. That's a formative moment, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing here is that it then goes into... It then goes into a word that I don't think anyone was really aware of until Reservoir Dogs came out, and Pulp Fiction in particular. Postmodernism. Everything's postmodern, which means everything just refers to itself and highlights its own artifice. It's still detached and intellectual. And it's a way not to to engage with any of it. Mm. I think it's like... We don't have to invest real emotion into our characters because it's postmodern. We are commenting on something that's happened before and you can say, yep, that's an easy get out to not put genuine emotion into your characters. But it's one of those things where... And it's also, I can put in lots of other things because it's irony. If you're offended, you don't get it. Yeah. <sighs> he wants to put the N-word into his films. It's like, well, then I'm going to stop you, but I will comment on why you're doing it. It's interesting in Kill Bill that the sheriff played by Michael Park says they even killed the coloured fella over there. And it's like, is that progress for you that you're using that word? But, um, would this, but, but in that case, I think the, the sheriff in that moment, I bought that enough because that, I was like, I buy the character would say that. But then Tarantino himself is using the word in Pulp Fiction and he's not supposed to be a bad guy, but he is just using it for comedy 
dead N-word storage. And it's like, well, there is a dead person involved here. But again, it's like a gauze of postmodernism mm. that is removing you from how offensive this is. Also the fact that we saw it when we were 20 and it's like, oh, it's all so fast and amazing. And then you get older and you think, well, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. And then with his most recent film, Django and The Hateful Eight, he's talking about race because he's setting them at a time during slavery or just after the Civil War. But it, it's a weightless argument, you could, I, I would say. I'd say that he's... He's making exploitation set in those areas. And, it, and it's yeah. good in terms of it kind of empowers a figure at that point who was generally you know, the slave rising up and slaughtering and murdering the house full of crackers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and... And on one hand, that, that's great. On the other hand, it's still it's anything for the sake of cool. Yes. And and I think that's where the where the influences these films, you know, Django, obviously from Django and from a whole and and and, and you know Jackie Brown, black is black exploitation. You know, opens with the music from oh what is it? Across hundred and ten. Across hundred and ten. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. It's one of those things where it's like I can do anything so long as I as so long as it's cool and. and it's completely sociologically detached. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and I think when you're trying to read sociological stuff into Quentin Tarantino's films, it's a bit of a futile... It's a bit, it's a bit about hiding... It's an exercise nowhere. in futility. Yeah. As, as no, and you're would say. absolutely right. And you're absolutely right. But, it's like, this is what I'm making and this is the thing that I'm making and it's, it's, it is what it is. And, but, you know, you talk on this tapestry and you're going to switch the podcast off. I mean, it's... Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the sociological aspect of it comes from what the film is, is and of itself and the time that it came from. Because yeah, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are great historical documents in terms of these were the films that we were most excited by at this point. They revitalised cinema. They showed that you could spend a million and a half dollars. Because this was the this was a time when T2 had been made and it was the first hundred million dollar budget yeah. film. And it's like a hundred million dollars spent on one film. Wow. What an amazing thing. And so, but you can make a film for a million and a half and it can be as dazzling and kinetic and exciting. So he's heralding a new wave of independent cinema mm -hmm. to the point where, at that time, it didn't matter what he was doing in terms of race. They weren't really questions that were being asked. We've evolved in 25 years. We've evolved in terms of how we think about these. Or, I don't know. Um, we haven't even talked about women yet. But to go back to the Barry Norman interview... So Barry Norman says, but the thing is also, you're one of the few directors who gives really big, interesting roles to black actors. And Tarantino says, yeah, but I don't think that's the answer. I don't think that's, that's the answer or the response to that question. He says, I am writing what's true to my characters, and if I wasn't writing what was true to the characters, then I would be a liar, and I can't do that. Yeah. Just it's... because you are a character doesn't yeah, you say you have character. <laughs> <laughs> or that you can... I'm... It's interesting, they're saying, like, why can't I use this word? And he, and he says, that's racism, saying that I can't use this word. And it's like... No, no, no. no. <laughs> awful, awful, horrible, horrible argument. That, but that is something that he said twenty years ago. Yeah, no, so it's one of those yeah. things. Tarantino claims to be a method writer <laughs> in terms of like you know he gets into his code. And one of the things I've, I've read in, really recently about him writing uh, Kill Bill is that he when he, he realised initially when he was writing Bill he was writing Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, and he's oh. like, and actually he's like, he's like, I had to almost against you know I had to start trying to pull away from that because right. it's like for whatever reason, I don't think this character should be Samuel L. Jackson. It's interesting to know that he has those voices in his head. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 that's, and again, that's not to condone it, but that's to say that like, if you buy into his argument that he is a method writer and these are things that, you know, he conducts a conversation kind of spontaneously and the voices that come <laughs> out of that, it's like, it makes it interesting that that word is so prevalent. Well, it's, it's like, more about him. It's just that we've, we, we, we want to talk about these films as, as a part of a, a structure, don't we? So, Obviously, 
whatever picadillos he might have than <laughs> leech out into our thesis as to what the society was like. I think it's interesting you talk about Bill because uh, I never liked Kill Bill, but I watched it again recently and finally watched the second part. And Bill, I thought, was one of the most grown up and most nuanced characters I think he'd ever done. It's like, it's a character. Go on, go on. No, I think it's, uh, and I, I could be entirely wrong, it could be just because I saw it in a, in a good mood and a good frame of mind, but it's like, that is a character who's true to himself, who doesn't sound like any of his other characters, who actually is more like a father figure and a brother figure and a lover. He's kind of like, he's, his character is determined by the relationships he has with the other characters. And he has authority, he has weight, but he doesn't, he's not, bombastic and he doesn't he does not look at me and it's like there's this wonderful thing where it's at the beginning of Kill Bill 2 he says could you really no the end of it says, could you really say that you were surprised that I did what I did and it's like well you are you're 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 a horrible person mm. and that comes through with with, with 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 everything you do with everything that you are it's not coming out through ridiculous bombastic okay. narrative Ticks it's the idea that, vocabulary. That, he's ration, that he rationalises everything. Well, he's just honest and he's yeah. true with who he is. And he's not trying to be cool. He just is cool. I found that the Bill character... Well, David Carradine. I mean, if he, he, he can't bring And he brings so much to it. And it would be interesting, because you know the original mm. actor who couldn't do it because of scheduling, Warren Beatty. Oh, I heard that. I yeah. heard that. And, and it would be that interesting... Wouldn't, that wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Oh, I don't know. I kind of think... I don't know. I... I really, really like Warren Beatty. I think there are some scenes that would have worked very well in that. Ultimately, I'm glad that it was David Carradine mm. because also it's like there's a certain actor that that works well in a Tarantino film, and David Carradine is one of those actors. I think David Carradine looked like he didn't need to be in that film, and it's like I got I got the impression of like um, John Travolta and Harvey Keitel. It was like in the nick of time, I was spared from Chapter Nine. Yeah, well, I was spared from look who's talking over there. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. With David Carradine, it's like I only knew him. I only knew him as Grasshopper. And to sort of see, oh, yeah, and then 25 years later, here he is still walking the earth and still got the same flute. And it's just, he felt like a natural character. I think he's fantastic in that film. Apart from his Superman line. My favourite superhero, Superman. Not a great comic book, not particularly well drawn. The Superman speech is horrible. It's just, it's, it's like, you can't say a comic that lasted 50 years had boring art. The art sucked. It's I like, like the way that that really, really I really did, because, it, again, it's fatuous. It's but he said it wasn't authority. very well drawn. Yeah, but it's... Why? It's, why? Yeah, it's well, for one thing, it's been, it was going for decades, so it wasn't drawn by a person. That's right, yeah, yeah. For yeah, one yeah. thing. For another thing, um, Kurt Swan is that the guy that people talk about when they talk about um, what Superman looks, comic book looked like. was a great artist. It, it's, it's, it's wonderful strength strength to it and it's, it's beautiful and clear. now every time I, I watch this film when he says that I'm going to imagine you striding into the room and going sorry let me interrupt you here <laughs> yeah. that is a fatuous argument fatuous <laughs> argument you and I, I, mean, I don't know I think that Kill uh, the, uh, the Bill is a Tarantino character yeah, the oh, opening totally. yeah, the yeah. opening speech that he has it's like yeah this is me at my most masochistic it's like there is no emotion to what you're feeling right now. You are just yeah, saying things that sound cool because you have to have a speech because of what you're about to do. But it's all the emotions coming from Uma Thurman. And Uma Thurman gives a big, raw performance in that film. Yeah, Uma Thurman, I don't think, is the best actress. Um, but she gives it her all in those two films and actually has some great moments in it, particularly that bit at the beginning when she's got blood all over her, she's been shot, and she's like trying to beg for her life because she's, because she's pregnant. Life. Yeah. 
which I suppose neatly leads us on to uh, to ladies and <laughs> and ladies in Tarantino's films, which I think we have to start off with True Romance with Alabama, who of course is referenced in Reservoir Dogs as being someone who hooked up with Mr. White, yeah, because in the original script. Clarence gets killed. Clarence gets killed. There's only one woman. <laughs> There's only one woman. Everyone well, it's, knows her. It's one of those things I wrote down saying, all the women are kind of B. So... There's how old do you think that black girl was, and someone says baby, and there's Bama in his wife. It's just a yeah, and the bride, of a course. weird and, oh, yeah, yeah. and the bride. It's just this weird tick, but it's like and Jackie later. Brown. Yep, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can really ruin two, three, seven. This one, <laughs> but. Uh, and Bonnie. Yeah. And Bonnie, yeah, yes, Bonnie, indeed, the Bonnie situation. Yeah. Actually, no, I completely changed my mind. There is something here. <laughs> it's not just a coincidence. Um, and you think, well, that's interesting, because that's one note as well, isn't it? So, but the fact that Alabama, well, she's called Alabama, so that's like a stripper name, isn't it? And she's a prostitute. And, yeah, yeah. But she's a prostitute who is new to it. So she's it's, only ever turned three tricks. Yeah. It's, <laughs> That's fine. what we all know. You it's don't, fine at that point. You yeah. don't become hardened until you get to the five. Yeah. You haven't even got your beginner certificate. You haven't got your wings yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's one of those things where this is... She can you, still be saved. She can still be saved. But after She's that... not yet for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But after that, she can't be saved? That's right. After that, she is damaged goods. And, exactly. and forever will be a... Quite right, an object of hate. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> object of hate, repository for lust. The, yeah, indeed. Just um, another invisible bitch. Because he said, like, I hadn't had a girlfriend when I wrote this. Like, really? I would never have guessed. Because <laughs> it's like, okay, you're the nerd who works in the comic store, as it is in that film, and your boss gets you a prostitute for your birthday, and but she turns out to be the girl of your dreams. And also she is what every man could want because she's voluptuous but she likes all the stuff that you like and <laughs> she doesn't really think for herself she follows you on this adventure and she can handle a gun and it's like I think there's a great gay film to be made from this because you have just written a bloke basically he, yeah. this is your best friend and he's the best but, friend with whom you can have a sexual relationship we, without without feeling yeah without yes, gay, gay panic for the gay we're just two guys having fun without nice guy <laughs> so great. without nice guy Eddie getting on back <laughs> and then you got Mia Wallace in Pulp Fiction and I don't know what you think of Mia Wallace as, as a female character I think when I was a kid I thought oh that's an impressive role and I think then I went no, through puberty no. and it was like that's a ridiculous role just... you went through puberty very late Ian. you were 20 years <laughs> old <laughs> it's, no it's, it's objective she, my midlife again, crisis before I went she's, she's cool Again. Again, she's not defined. I don't. I think for the most part, very few female Quentin Tarantino characters are defined at all by gen, by gender or, or sexuality, really at all. It's just all defined just by feet and cool. Well, there's a really, really interesting line that the Patricia Arquette character has in that film, where she says, "Piercing turns every part of your body into the tip of a penis," and it's like. How do you know what tip of a penis is? And she's talking to another woman at that point, and it's like, <laughs> why are you saying tip of a penis? Clit. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there is a there is a there is a, an equivalent part of the female anatomy. Lemon, you're acting yeah. like some sort of female businessman. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that's called. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a word. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure that's a word. Um, and it's <laughs> and that always sums up for me just how not how he approaches women, but just. From a distance. Well, just his, um, I don't know, his knowledge of women. Or it's like it's the same think... thing. It's not much frame of reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just not much frame of reference. It's what a 19-year-old would churn out. Yeah, and there is a liberal use of bitch. Yeah, and it's kind In of weird. Reservoir, I was thinking about earlier. And you were saying that so... the, 
the, the scene in the car when Mr. Orange gets into the car with Mr. White and Nice Guy Eddie and Mr. Pink and they're just chopsing about telly. And you had an issue with that in terms of, well, yeah, the end yeah, of had an issue with that. <laughs> you, snowflakes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know my colleague James Woods is trying to say. <laughs> Why don't you just <laughs> melt away? Accentuated sense of moral outrage. But it is interesting in that they, they, they do, that it is a conversation, you're right, about N-words and bitches. And it's, and it's weird, it's like, because we don't, we don't apparently have a problem saying bitch. And it's like... Is it because it's tied into hundreds of years of subjugation, slavery and murder, whereas bitch... Is but it's not written down. But as we much. don't feel bad like, about it. Yet. But it's not written down. As much. Yeah, or, yeah, or that we haven't evolved to that point yet. I mean, yeah. there is an ongoing discussion. But that's a really good point. We won't say the M word, but we've said Jew and bitch. Yeah. What's the difference? It's like oh, yeah. no, totally. It's yeah. Oh, it's through a mirror darkly in it. It is. It is no, to be honest, Mia Watt, Mia Watt is a terrible character, and it's it's ridiculous. It's like, you can't even tell heroin from cocaine, and it's like this whole thing is like not just being well, a liability, uh, just being this. Incredibly fragile, dangerous thing I've got to carry along, well, otherwise I, another man will attack me. Again, I think that's the yeah. idea with the Mia Wallace character, and I think you get it as well, of somebody playing dress up. It's somebody who's out there and is presenting herself as cool and does the whole, and does the dupe that does do the drug and does the drugs in the in the in the, uh, in the public restroom and goes, yeah. Oh god damn yeah. and it's like but she doesn't know Coke from heroin and you could argue yeah. that you could argue that's a story contrivance and it's just something that's that he's done to make or you can look at her and say she, she's she's playing she's playing dress up, she's presenting herself as this gangster's mole and she's not. Because there is an interesting thing one? when she talks sorry, when she talks about the pilot and says that was my fifteen minutes and you get the impression that she's a failed actress. I mean she's <laughs> a failed actress and it's like and he calls her Uma Thurman his muse that he writes a big four-hour album about her, and it's interesting because on the trivia track for that movie that I watched the other day, they're talking about the heroine and saying when Lance, the Eric Stoltz character, says, "Have you got any baggies?" Because he hasn't got the right stuff to put the heroin into, so he puts it into um, a cocaine bag. Oh right, and that's why she thinks it's coke. And it's like, can you get white heroin there? Because I thought heroin was brown, with my very very limited knowledge of. Uh, <laughs> The China White isn't that? Yeah, isn't, that's what I thought. But it's yeah. white heroin. There's so yeah. much I don't know about the drug culture. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Let's just, let's just reference popular songs and base <laughs> our entire knowledge of. That's really right. fine. <laughs> but it's yeah. So that's the that's the reason why it's like yeah, it's not that she's a doll. It's just that it's it's in well, a it cocaine is, bag. She's is well, it's kind of. Well, yeah. I mean, it's so, what you say to kids: don't put bleach in a coke bottle. Don't under your store under the sink. But um, it's, but Mia Wallace isn't the only female character in that film. There's also Bruce Willis's girlfriend, yeah, who's the most oh god god. It's like you had one job to pick up the watch, and that is just I can't even think what she's called. I think she's even got a name. I think she's actually called Baby, isn't it? No, she's got a name. It's um, but the thing is, I friendship. <laughs> she's called. Which is Spanish, isn't she? You daft racist. <laughs> <laughs> it's Maria de Medeiros. Um, and why am I remembering the characters being French? Because she is French in the film. Yeah, she is. Yeah. So, yeah, only a bit of a racist. <laughs> Stop saying racist. She's called Fabienne, of course. Fabienne. Fabienne. Because, oh, of, of course, they also get yeah, the mongoloid reference yes. in as well. <laughs> Go for the trifecta. Yeah. Trifecta? I've got way more than that. <laughs> but there's Esmeralda de Villalobos, who's also... Who's you're thinking, well, actually, I would watch a, a film with her in it. It's um, she, Eric Stoltz's girlfriend. No, she's she's the cab driver who drives Butch back to. Um, and they come. She's the really yeah. God. <laughs> but come on, that's cool. That's like kind of it's it's a B movie trope that you have this incredibly exotic, beautiful woman driving you away from the fight <laughs> from the fight you've just fixed. That's 
I have no problem with that. I think that's fine. I think it's that's, like a it's yeah, a good that's... it's a good interchange of the two of them as well. So Esmeralda the little low boss. Is that Mexican? Your name is Spanish, but I am Colombian. That's some halo you got there, honey. Thank you. And what is your name? Butch. Butch. What does it mean? I'm an American, honey. Her names don't mean shit. That's also interesting there. She's Angela Jones. She was in a short film called Curdled, which is about a woman, I think she's a mortician, who becomes obsessed with dead bodies. Tarantino saw this short film at one of the film festivals um, and then produced the feature film that was made of that story with her in it. And actually, Curdled is quite a good film, so you, you, you check it out. Um, All right, my invisible notebook. Sorry. <laughs> 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 Missing out, and it's because you hate Angela Jones. So why do you, why do you hate women? I think one of, the, one of the things that I find strangest and that, yeah, that I do find is that in these films... Where is where is the race? I mean, you can you can argue where you can kind of point back and say okay that's where the misogyny is coming from. Where is where is the use of the N word coming from? Where is that feeding in from? Like you can well, point at have... everything else and say okay you can trace that you can trace that you can trace that you can trace that. What you can't really it's not as easy to trace. Well, Tarantino says it comes from from the milieu that he grew up in because he came from a working class background. Yeah, single mum raised him. And he says that when he was growing up that he had lots of black men around him as father figures, so it's maybe the Moonlight story. I don't know. It's, um, it's, it's all getting a bit weird now. But, um, but he said... Quentin Tarantino's Moonlight. I yes, it, I would watch. God, I, I would have watched that <laughs> with morbid fascination. But it's... He says it comes from real life and from his experiences, therefore that's why he has to write the characters in this way. You know, make of that what you will. We don't. We weren't there when he was growing up. Um, because but, obviously he's so he's so obsessed with realism in every other aspect. <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? And that's and that's a really good point. It's like thinking, okay, so you're writing realistic dialogue here, but you're not because they're talking about Tony Rocky Horror being thrown out of a window and stuff like this. And it's like, and it's uh, yeah, it's um, he is a fascinating man. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I think the Reservoir Dogs is his best movie. I think it's, it's his most focused movie, it's, it's his most disciplined movie. He should go back to directing films for $5 million and bring them in at 90 minutes. Uh, because his latest film, The Hateful Eight, is 20 years later. He's just, he's doing the same thing again. It's, uh, it's a bunch of guys in one place, one of them isn't who they seem, they're stuck in this one location and it ends in a bit of a bloodbath with a Mexican standoff. It's like we've been here before and it's really good fun watching you do this and of course that film uses music from The Thing that wasn't used in The Thing but it was from Ennio Morricone's score for The Thing and The Thing is a bigger influence on Reservoir Dogs yeah that's great and we all love The Thing that's one of the greatest films ever made and it is Ian that's a phrase that we all say all the time we do love The Thing anyway but, uh, thing. but you've been here 20 years ago documentary that I sent around to you guys, the omnibus one where he says, I don't want to be known after 15 years as just the gun guy. It's like, well, you were, because it turned There's out... Swords you, as well. You did, yeah, yeah, there were swords, and there was... Um, There's appropriation go- for other cultures. In <laughs> <laughs> Kill Bill, like, yeah, Go-Go Yubari, she had that, like, your ball thing, didn't she? That was a bit like Phantasm, that was. So, <laughs> so that was good, and that wasn't the gun. Ultimately, I think, is like, he didn't have that many different stories to tell. But one of the things in Reservoir Dogs is that it was the first time that I'd seen people pointing guns at each other really close up. 
that's interesting, isn't it? Because you're pointing guns, and either of you could fire at the same time, and there's no, there's, it's it's weird and seems to be like a checkmate or like a stalemate to do that. But there's something very, very cinematic about it. And then you realise, oh, it's because you watch lots of Hong Kong action cinema, and that's just one of the motifs of that is that it's, and it's you know just a latent homosexuality that goes through films like The Killer. Um, that is, these are the love scenes between these guys. They are pointing guns at each other. But that was all appropriated from that. And cultural appropriation, there's, oh, there's, a, there's a whole thing, isn't there, about, about that and Tarantino that we can't go into because it could take hours. But what do you think the influence is of Tarantino on the rest of the film? Because he was heralded as the new voice of cinema. Well, I think it was, it is, I think you can't, you, 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 it was suddenly a lot of young white men making cheap films about talking. But with this genre sort of, undercut to it so you could say and I mean, with the dialogue rarely being as good <laughs> yeah, well yeah exactly yeah. but it's um, so you, you two ways I mean for me talk about the dialogue not being as good not necessarily aged as well but I'll always 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 have a very soft spot for Kevin Smith's films about the same time I would say that the dialogue in Clark's maybe is as good it's kind of it's it, you can say that it's it doesn't need to go anywhere so therefore it's he's making it easier on himself because he doesn't have to tell a story it's just like a rambling day that they're doing but yeah. But Clark's is one of those films. I mean, that is that is hilarious dialogue. Um, and I really like I really like that sense. And I know Kevin Smith. I, I, you know, he's a completely different career. But I, I, my personal view is that Kevin Smith's very, very generous in sort of like talking about his enthusiasms, just like Quentin Tarantino. But um, Kevin Smith, and, and again, it's weren't both of them video store clerks. Uh, I shouldn't uh, know the background of Kevin, well, Kevin he, Smith. Because Kevin Smith worked at Clark's. Yeah. They, they oh, he worked in the convenience store, store didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've been watching videos all the time. So yeah, it's yeah. like, they've both got these kind of like, and I think it's interesting also, those are two jobs that don't exist anymore. So yeah. you can kind of like see, well, yeah. there's nobody whose job it is to look after these videos. Anyway. Yeah. But, um, and I really like the fact that Kevin Smith is always talking about, for him it was Richard Linklater, and you know, it was saying, oh, if this guy can make this film for no money, then I, I have no excuse for not, being creative and doing the story that I want to tell, and I think that's I think that's glorious because I think that is kind of like a, a working class. They can do it. I've got no excuse for not trying to do it, and yeah. I'm going to do it. And it's not going to cost any money, but I'm going to make the film I want to make. And you can argue about how good or otherwise his later films are, but I always think that he's come back to saying, "Well, no, actually, this is the story I want to tell." And I think that's kind of like Kevin the same. Smith. Or Kevin or Smith, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think you can kind of see that's the same sort of like you know you might argue about the quality and the diversity of Tarantino's films, but you can't say he's not enthusiastic about what he does. Oh heavens no! And that's the thing. It's like I the documentary that you sent round and Terry Gilliam at the end saying, "Oh, you know, I hope he sort of like gets out of this little backwater of cinema enthusiasm and makes a." A good honest film. It's like, stop. You're not his dad. You're not sort of like saying this is how I would do your career if I was doing your career. Captain Tarantino, if nothing else, is great because he makes what he wants to make, and people want to see that. It's like, I might not be interested in what Tarantino's films are. I might not need to see every single one of them, and I have a positive opinion about every aspect of them. But it's like he's making the films he wants to make. I really enjoyed Tusk, for example, <laughs> Red State, I, I still and they're kind of like. They're kind of I like, love Red State. These are films that he obviously... These are, these are stories that these individuals want to make, and I think that's groovy. But I think the other side of it is you wound up with people who wanted to make a Tarantino-esque film. Yeah. And so I think we've all wasted days and days and days watching Two Days in the Valley, and you said talking about Killing Zoe, and I saw things to do in Denver when you're dead in the cinema. And it's like... You did. And do you know what film I was seeing while you were seeing that? James and the Giant Peach. Oh, God. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's the thing. I think. But... Um, <laughs> 
Because I had to review it for a fanzine that I was writing for. And I really wanted to see the Tarantino film esque film <laughs> things to do in Denver yeah. which actually and I have a bit of a soft spot for things well, to do in Denver well. it's got a lovely sort of cast in it and... it is I'd say it's probably the best of all the Tarantino knockoffs. it's a film that's not particularly remembered for a reason but also um, well it's interesting when you look back at the filmmakers from that time because the filmmakers in this country that were trying to do Tarantino were Paul W.S. Anderson with Shopping which was another film that was caught up in that whole Jamie Bolger violence thing, because it was also about ram raiding. Yeah. And ram raiding was going to bring about the end of the world at that time, and that was like a social evil that, that the press was screaming about. And and wasn't very good. And then you had Young Americans, which had Harvey Keitel in it. And it's like, so we've got Mr. White in a British film. Oh my God, and it's like a, it's a British gangster film, so we're doing a Reservoir Dogs. And that was Danny Cannon, who went on to do Judge Dredd. Mm, yeah. um, and that wasn't very good either. Yeah, yes, there. indeed. Yeah, yeah, because he did um, NCSI as well. I think that was his yeah. thing that he was doing too. But and Lockstock, of course. And Lockstock, but Lockstock was interesting because. No, but, it wasn't. Well, it was in terms of yeah, in terms of you had someone who approached the talent because the thing about Tarantino is that everyone seems to miss is that well he's intelligent and he is a clever guy who knows what he's doing and and has some ideas around this. You are actually writing really really mundane stories in a really mundane way and your dialogue just isn't as good and everyone seemed to think that they could just you know work in a video store and watch a hundred movies and then they would be a director and it's like well that's not entirely what's going on here mm. and also like things like you know guy like uh lockstock and snatch both came up or well, snatch especially you know it's got the whole diamond heist it's got the whole diamond robbery in it and all these films coming off the back I think I'd, I'd argue that Lockstock and Snatch are arguably two of the. If you're going to count them as offshoots of like Reservoir Dogs, it's slightly two of the potentially slightly only slightly more interesting ones. Mm-hmm. I'd say so. If yeah. only because they you've got the whole wide boy Cockney geezer thing through. Oh, yeah. Whether or not you like it in terms <laughs> of just culturally. Yes, definitely. But that became that <laughs> Thank became you loaded. Thank you. <laughs> Yo, God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> loaded was a magazine from. Was it was a postmodern porn mag for from right. from the nineties for for those teens who were embarrassed to buy Fiesta and Mayfair. Yes. So they yeah. so I can't buy this because they don't know that I'm going to wank over it. But it, it loaded. I can get the same thing, but it's pretending to be a proper magazine, and it's all about lad culture. Like, like, you can buy Playboy for the articles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was. Um, but but the weird thing about that is that then porn like yeah the Mockney who said that. Porn for cowards. You said that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> I think as I, as I was watching Sorry. porn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Notoriously, you've never been cowardly about your porn. Reason. Reason about my craft. My craft. My My life's work at a terabyte of terror. <laughs> um, but the Mockney Gangster film in itself became a subgenre yes. of crime films and it was lots of people trying to do with Guy Ritchie and it's like well you just don't have that talent and Guy Ritchie can say what you want about him but he can make a film that lots of people want to see in a way that lots of people that came afterwards just just couldn't crack that code because it all yeah. filters down and it gets more and more diluted and less and less interesting yeah, yeah. because oh yeah I because mean, it's like one remove, two remove, three remove, and then you could, and, and you know, and we're picking apart. You know, we, we think we all think that Reservoir Dogs is at the very, very least a very well made, very interesting film. But once you get like you know, ten removes from that, pop culture being like the human centipede. Yeah, definitely, 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 definitely. Yeah. But the other thing here is that um, Quentin Tarantino was part of the Sundance class of '92, and there was this moment 
At the beginning of the 90s, it's interesting that Richard Linklater wasn't part of that because he hadn't got a film out that year, I don't think, but has become one of the most yeah. celebrated directors from that period because there was... Um, Soderbergh as well, I guess. And Soderbergh, yes. Well, well, he was kind of written off at this point because mm. uh, his follow-up to Sex, Lies and Videotape, Kafka, was a failure. Did he do Kafka? Yeah. Um, Jim yes. Rimes? Yes. I liked that film. Was that Richard Langlader? No, um, Soderbergh. Soderbergh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah no, really, I hate um, Stephen Soderbergh. And I, that's a, that's, sorry, it's a stupid, well, bland thing to say. No? We'll get on to... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get on to Soderbergh in just a minute. Yeah. But the thing there is that... So you had people like Alison Anders, who did Gas Food Lodging, who was actually had a relationship with Quentin Tarantino for a while, which is really interesting because she writes really good female characters and did a really, really interesting, a nice little story. Female characters. Well, I, think, I, think, uh, I think that's word, Lemon. Well, she writes nice, nice women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't work. Yeah. Sorry, but there was also um, Tom Kalin who did Swoon, which was based upon the Leopold and Loeb case. and was <gasps> Swoon? I'd forgotten about Swoon. Yeah, oh, my God. And was a really interesting film from the gay cinema um, bracket, as it was then. It was a gay romance, but it was about murder. And it was one of those films that were saying, look, we don't all have to be AIDS victims. We, there is a we film here. We could be killers too. We could, we could, but we don't have to be likeable. And yeah, it was one yeah, of those yeah. films. And then you had, um, what was it, Gregor Racky was there, I think, with, with the films. Well, I can't remember which that one was. And, and there was Christopher Munch, who did The Hours and the Times, which was that one-hour film with Ian Hart playing John Lennon and that... That weekend where he went to Spain or something with Brian Epstein, and it was yeah, what happened on this because there was always God, that rumor that they had a, a gay relationship. Yeah, and I remember that being reviewed by Barry Norman on Film Ninety Two. And, and to make you feel older, Ian Hart has just done a film about a gay relationship called God's Own Country. Yes, in which he plays a gruff Yorkshire farmer who's had a, who's had a stroke and is sort of very emo- um, physically wasted. And obviously that you know he's gone from being like the guy playing the uh, the younger playing the guy in the dungeon dress, playing John Lennon, yeah, playing John Lennon to play the guy who was basically old enough to be his grandfather. Yeah. 25 yeah. years ago. 25 years later. 25 years. <laughs> There's Cat Shea who did Poison Ivy, uh, the Drew Barrymore film. And one more is Alexander Rockwell who did In the Soup, which won the best film at Sundance that year when everyone said it should have gone to Reservoir Dogs. Well, everyone thought it was going to go to Reservoir Dogs and it went to In the Soup. And none of these guys have gone on to really do anything else in terms of having a really big career. Mm. And you're kind of thinking, is that because all of your films, they were character pieces? They didn't have the genre trappings of Reservoir Dogs and mainstream Hollywood said, we want that, we want this, we want something like this because this is going to make us $100 million. Pulp Fiction made... Mm. Yeah, they, 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 were, they were personal. They didn't have a shtick. They That's, weren't yeah. easy. They weren't easy to reproduce. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And so That's I, right. One of the things um, actually just thinking about. I think the whole. You could argue that the whole subgenre that's come off the back of Tarantino has problems with female characters because I'm just thinking of Martin McDonough, the playwright, the uh, the Irish playwright who who clearly has uh, Tarantino's fed into a lot fed into a lot of his plays in terms of depictions of violence between and the dialogue and how mm-hmm. it crackles. He, he did a film uh, his thought in Bruges was a film called Seven Psychopaths. And I think is the thing is the thing is that we've become aware of the problems of the, the inability of writing female characters in a way that was never really a concern in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that Seven Psychopaths is comments on his inability to write female characters as in like <laughs> I would rather part, write a new piece of work yeah, that, that as in talks like, about my inability as in go off and the, fix my inability ex- exactly and that's the thing <laughs> yeah, you, no, you, no. you lampshade it you, you say it's not, yeah. it's not a bug it's a feature yeah 
foregrounded my own foibles. Aren't I amazing and how flawed I am? In all all fairness, Three Billboards, his latest one, does get, you know, does to go a long way to addressing that. Well, it's got uh, Francis McDormand, who will, I think, is is an actress who will not take a role just for a paycheck. She and and what's that? And, and, and that's and it's, is it twenty five years since Fargo? Is it no? Mm, that's twenty ninety six. Twenty one years. Twenty one years since yeah. So yeah, since Minnesota Nice, and she sort of uh, yeah. That's and that's the thing. We've been through endless iterations, and it, I think it's just how we. And I think we've. When when do you think the it became self aware? When did. When, when did the human centipede gain self-awareness? Pretty much immediately. I think it's quite... Yeah. I mean, the whole, cause the whole commentary community that was around Tarantino at the time it was happening knew it was absurd to be who shot Nice Guy editing it. And it's... It was... Some did. <laughs> but it was also the beginning of internet culture. And I remember, because it was at university and it was on those really, really primitive forums. But it's like, I'm talking to somebody in America. Yeah. Um, but the aggression that came out is still there. It is. It is the YouTube comment page, but it was there from the very beginning because people didn't think that they were going to be challenged on their opinion and didn't know how to have a conversation. Which is ironic because it's when in which lots of people have conversations, but, but they don't. They don't have well, conversations yeah, so yeah, with Tarantino but, because fundamentally they all agree with one another. Yeah, it's uh, or they don't. If they don't agree with one another, it ends with someone dying. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. there's never there's never a compromise. Yeah, yeah, which is actually yeah. So they are the children of Tarantino. The interesting thing is that. He then brought Elmore Leonard some cool as well, because he was saying, like, Elmore Leonard is my favourite author. Everyone goes, OK, right, then we need to look at Elmore Leonard in, in terms of films there. Well, so Jersey you have... films did get shorty as well as... That's right, fiction, yeah. They? And they they did um, Be Cool, was that the belated follow-up? Yeah, the belated yeah. Follow-up. yeah it wasn't very good. Or Soderbergh. Out of Sight. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is the great film from the, the... is from the wake of those films. Like, yeah, from the wake of Tarantino, you have Out of Sight, and I think that is... One of the great crime films. What year did um, From Dust Till Dawn come out? That came out in 96. So that was before Out of Sight. Yeah, which was 98. So Clooney had already done a film with a director, co-starring with a director who had kind of brought Elmwood Leonard and kind of created that wave of Elmwood Leonard films into which Clooney would eventually play by being in Out of Sight. But I think, yeah, it's, indeed, kind of, yeah. I think it's a small <laughs> yep. population anyway. Yeah, indeed. Because it's, it's, yeah. you make that leap to it's superhero films, it's kind of like... The Tarantino thing, because you're absolutely right. It's, for, for me, it kind of like compares to like the mid '80s comic book thing with Grant, Mo- uh, Grant Morrison, uh, Al- Alan Moore, and Frank Miller, who said, "Write comics. I'm going to tell the story I want to tell the comics thing. I read comics when I was a kid. I love comics as a kid. I'm going to make my comic." And it was a massive success, crossover not just for children but for grown-ups as well. Wow, there's money to be made off these comics. Comics aren't just for kids. Everyone who came immediately afterwards just impersonated. Alan Moore and Frank Miller instead of taking the lesson was which is like I'm making my own thing yeah. and so you copy the trappings rather than copy the inspiration and that's, that's the thing I think yeah. Alan, the same. Alan Moore and Frank Miller both had their inspirations and I think obviously Alan Moore is the one where if you look at League of Extraordinary Gentlemen it's a pot boiler it is have you read Providence? Yeah, I haven't uh, we should talk when this is you finished can take, <laughs> you can take the first volume with you and it, it is well worth a read but that's really interesting in terms of what you were saying in before the podcast that yeah, what is the what is the cinematic legacy of Tarantino? I think that he brought Asian cinema to the mainstream, and a lot of films got released because he was willing to put his name on them. So Hero got released because it was Parents of Tarantino presents Chunking Express got a wide release because it was through his short-lived DVD label, but it still got out there. 
And it's the thing where it's good, it's good. You are bringing an appreciation of world cinema here as well because you'll talk about it and everyone just wants to hear what you like. But you were saying that the legacy of him is the current superhero universe. I think you can draw a line because one thing what you were saying earlier about Tarantino being the first extended universe, it's like, yeah, absolutely. Everyone knows one another. They all link together. But for me, those films, the well, for one thing, they're genre films. They're, they're films about people being violent in action-packed scenarios where characters aren't particularly deeply drawn, but they're very pithy characterizations with glamorous trappings and, and whatnot, having their wise-cracking adventures forever. And I think that is kind of, especially down to Samuel L. Jackson, uh, obviously maybe mm. that species leap. And I think Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man, you've got a guy who is very, very talkative, very, very self-consciously cool, who's evidently playing himself, but has got this glamorous, action-packed teenage boy thing hanging off him, which means he gets that kind of crossover appeal. And I think I think there is a comparison. Stories yeah, I think so. endlessly telling the same story of violence and charm and glamour and yet somehow there's still a little yeah. bit of critical nous to it. And it's interesting because obviously Tarantino in all these films, they're all, the characters recur, but the actors recur, but they're playing different characters. Yeah. Whereas Marvel is obviously a franchise. So the difference is Marvel has gone, okay, you are this character. You are this one character oh, and you are continuing throughout. That's but, what I was thinking there. In, in terms of the extended universe, it's like that you can't have different actors playing the same thing. But that's the, that's the thing though. But, because we're obviously outrunning that. I mean, after Infinity War... What, there'll be a new Iron yeah. Man? There'll be a new Captain America? Are there going to be yeah. different actors playing the same I, I characters? They're, they're going to be... I think they're pivoting over to the Guardians of the Galaxy universe. I think Bucky Barnes is going to become... It's obviously going to become Captain America because they've got Sebastian Stan signed up for eight films and he's on two so far, two, three. And, yeah, so that's the thing. It's one of those things that you can just keep running forever and ever and ever. Oh, but hilariously, it's a corporation. Yeah. The first thing we start talking about Tarantino is... Let's do it ourselves. Let's, yeah. I think. Well, it's, it's, sorry, it's, it's, sorry. Like, it's well, it's Disney bringing in like Ryan Johnson and all these all these sort of indie directors who've gone off and made their made their film on whatever budget, and now indies brought them into the shop. Uh, in, sorry, uh, Disney's brought them into the shop to varying levels of success, and said, "Here you go. Here's a big budget. Make the movie. Buy do the, the thing truck. for us." Yeah. Just when you think you're out, you get pulled back in by a really interesting point. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting that the indie filmmakers nowadays who, who are making their small little personal films in their next film, they're not building up to the big blockbuster by doing like, yeah, four films to prove they can handle budgets. Because if, if you look at Christopher Nolan, it was like, he did a self-funded film, Memento, Insomnia, then he got Batman. And everyone said, that's weird, he's, he's got Batman really quickly, hasn't it? So well, I suppose he could prove he can, he can handle big actors. You've got Colin Trevorrow, who's, who was given the Jurassic Park franchise to reboot. But all these films just look the same and they have no stamp to them. Tarantino won the Palme d'Or for the second film. You can say that that early success actually spoilt him because he felt that he had to follow it up with something amazing and he didn't and then he got into like Kill Bill thinking well I'll just throw everything in again and he had that success but now it's like one of these things where you just get given the big film but you're not allowed to put a stamp on it which is why you can never imagine him doing a Marvel film because it's like well he wouldn't want to do it your way because he just wouldn't be able to do what you want him to do. Mm, I, I think, think you have to cut out some of the invective for one thing. No, it's, it's, it oh, it yes, is. I, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. But I do think it's. It, it reminded me because I listened to your Doctor Who podcast the other week, and it was really, really enjoyable. Thank you very much for that. Nope. But it was. Like, it reminded me of something I read about um, Doctor Who as how it was. But this might be completely off topic. So on. Nice pause. You can cut it easily if you want. But it was the idea that this was broadcast, obviously, from the sixties, seventies, eighties at the time, where there wasn't much 
TV for kids. And Doctor Who was very consciously created as being something that young children could watch and parents could enjoy. And that meant you could watch it as a family. And anything that could have that crossover appeal meant that it was more likely to be watched because the parents wouldn't have to turn this shit off. They were all going to watch it as a family. Tom Baker has that wonderful thing about family, describing the family watching Doctor Who together yeah. and the grown up saying, isn't this fun? And I was a child who was addicted to Doctor Who when I was, a, when I was little. And then... I watch it with my children now, and to be absolutely hand on heart, it's one of the most beautiful things. I get to have a 45-minute cuddle with my children mm-hmm. while we all watch Doctor Who together. And it's like, that is beautiful. But what it does is the children leech off that enthusiasm of the adults, or that it's a family mm-hmm. thing. So it becomes more special to them. And Doctor Who was programmed in the early days. It was a half-hour program that ended on a cliffhanger. So all the children had seen the same program on a Saturday night, spent the week at school, what happens next? All of them together, learning how to tell stories within the framework of this Doctor Who thing. And then you see the people, not all of them, but then the people who make Doctor Who now were ones who were those children. It's like Russell Russell T. Davies and uh, Stephen Moffat, David Tennant, Peter Capaldi. These are people who've characterised themselves as saying, yeah, this is why I want to make Doctor Who, because... And why I became an actor, why I became a creator, because I watched Doctor Who as a child. It's a creation that has part of its being, part of its anatomy, is the ability to inspire... The next generation. To regenerate it, literally. And for me, it's the same thing with these indie filmmakers. It's like, there is something in it that we all saw it, and we all took something from it, and we want to not regurgitate it, we want to put our spin on it, and we want to do it ourselves, and we want to create it ourselves. And we talked about with Kevin Smith earlier, it's like... He talks with such joy and love, and it's enthusiasm. And enthusiasm literally means to have God inside you. Not like in a religious way, but just to have that spark of inspiration and creation that you get, you're so passionate about it, you want to create it yourself. And that is beautiful. And that's, what, that's why I don't mind that Quentin Tarantino is it's, it's doing the same thing over and over. Thing. It's yeah. what he wants to create. And that is great. And you're going to get people who want to copy that and make Two Days in the Valley or whatever. But you're also going to get people who are, no, I can do it as well. If you can do it, I can do it. It's going to seem like we're doing the same thing, but actually there's there's just enough that moves it on. And that's why I think it's really, really positive. And that's why I think the indie thing is... I mean, for me, I was at a certain age when this thing came out, so to me it did seem crazy. I don't know about you, when I was young, camcorders were still relatively hard to come by, but a mate of mine had a camcorder. So of course we made our own films, and of course we wrote our own scripts, and it was like because you don't trust anyone who enjoys something like this and doesn't want to do it themselves mm. on whatever level, even if it's like doodles or you know diaries for Christ's sake. It's the act of creation because you're inspired by seeing somebody else's creation, and I think that's what's lovely, and I think that's what that whole indie spirit. I think is what he was a part of that chain. I think that's what passes on. I quite like that about him. Yeah. Very well put. I have to leave that in now. Oh. <laughs> Two and three quarter hours. But it's right because that's that's right. Two <laughs> no, she said that with a little bit of disdain. I don't think because it's, it's the edit, isn't it? It's the edit job on it. <laughs> but it should run long because that's something that's characterised. He is not a person who cuts I think stuff out. He's well, a putter in and not a taker out, as Stephen King said about himself. <laughs> um, but 
That's a very good point. And I actually say, it just occurred to me when you were saying that, that Joss Whedon, I think, could be the, the heir of all this stuff because he was someone else who said, like, yeah, I really like pop culture, but I have the talent to tell these stories. I'm not interested in crime, but I'm interested in fantasy and horror. So therefore, that's what I'm going to do. And then you create something, and then you have universes built around that. So you have Angel as a spin off of Buffy, and then you get into Firefly and, and all these different things. And of course, he is now one of the overseers of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but has now been brought into DC as well because he seems to have this gift. God, you can go down so many rabbit holes with this. I'm trying to think of things that haven't been said that should have been said. Oh, can I go say on. one thing? Sorry. When, um, because we haven't talked about um, Tim Roth's commode story and how that's... Yes, we haven't. And that was so of, beautiful. It's like, for me, it's the favourite part of the film. Okay, right. So hold that, because I just want to say, one thing we should have said about this is that uh, The Killing is a Stanley Kubrick film that was... And we literally brought up Kubrick earlier, so... And we literally brought up Kubrick earlier, but when you, you, know, when you get into it, and your mind's racing, <laughs> and you don't make notes on it on anything, there's a lesson there, isn't there? But um, <laughs> um, The Killing is a non-linear crime film that Stanley Kubrick made with Jim Thompson, who wrote The Killer Inside Me, and many really? other books. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And Pop, what was it, One... Population 1281, which is amazing. That's his best book, yeah. Yeah, Jim Thompson was down on his luck at this point, and Kubrick was trying to make it as a filmmaker, and they just came together at this point and made one of the great crime films that at the time was lauded because that's really interesting. It's told in like a non linear structure. So you see the thing, and then you see it all being plotted and all this kind of stuff. So the killing and the thing is just a huge influence on what he was doing here with Reservoir Dogs and you should check out The Killing. But yes, when I saw the film, I thought, wow, this is so interesting. You are showing someone telling a lie within the lie and he's saying it to the people that are in the lie. It gets just... deeper and deeper and deeper, doesn't it? Yeah. it starts off by him being given the anecdote. What is this? That's an amusing anecdote about a drug deal. What? Something funny that happened to you while you're doing a fucking job, man. Damn. That's over four fucking pages Look, of this shit. Man, just think about it like it's a, a joke, all right? You memorize what's important, the rest you make your own, all right? And then he's practicing it. And then he's practicing it a second time in front of guys giving their dad that beautiful graffiti wall. But then that got to be a pain in the ass. People call me on the phone all the fucking time. I couldn't even run a fucking tape without six fucking phone calls interrupting me. Hey, when's the next time you're getting some? Motherfucker, I'm trying to watch The Last Boys, you know? When I get some, I'll let you know. And it's like an acting job. It is an acting job. And then he's telling it actually in the bar. This is a very weird situation. I don't know if you remember back in 86, there was a major fucking drought. Nobody had anything. People were living on resin, smoking the wood in their pipes for months. This chick had a bunch. And she's begging me to sell them. And then he's actually in the anecdote. So I walk into the men's room, and who's standing there? Four Los Angeles County sheriffs and a German shepherd. And then he's in the anecdote talking. Every nerve ending, all my senses, blood in my veins, everything I have is screaming, take off, man. Just bail, just get the fuck out of there. Panic hits me like a bucket of water. First there's a shock of it, bam, right in the face. I'm just standing there drenched in panic and all these sheriffs looking at me and they know, man, they can smell it. Sure as that fucking dog can, they can smell it on me. And then the cops in the background of the anecdote are telling their own anecdote. Shut up. Hey, so, so anyway, I got my gun drawn, right? And I got to point it right at this guy. I tell him, freeze, don't fucking move. And this little idiot's looking right at me, nodding his head, yeah, and he's saying, I know, I know, I know. But meanwhile, his right hand is creeping towards the glove box. And I scream at him. I go, asshole, 
I'm gonna fucking blow you away right now. Put your hands on the dash. And he's still looking at me, nodding his head, you know. I know, buddy, I know, I know. And meanwhile, you know, his hand is still going for the glove box. That's right. And it's like, this is really brilliant. Because it's also, it's like three minutes. And it's yeah. like, you're on this wonderful, wonderful trail. And it's like, the, just the, the joy of telling a story and the joy of entertaining someone with a story. And done in this flashy way. And he looks beautiful in it. I mean, oh, he does. It's like Tim Roth, he's wearing the white t-shirt and he's so lean and he's so pretty. It's just, uh, it's really striking and when he walks into the what toilet, lies. when he when he walks into the toilet, he has the Tim Roth strut <laughs> that he does in the in the very first thing that he was in was Made in Britain, in which he plays oh, an yeah. articulate skinhead. It's like a play that was made in the early eighties for yeah. ITV, and it's him mm. walking into a courtroom to be sentenced, and it's the exact same strut that he has in Reservoir Dogs, and it's like, and it's like that was him announcing himself to just to the industry we've made in Britain. Now this is him announcing himself to Hollywood with this scene in mm. which he is going to be telling this lie. And that's really interesting because when he's telling the lie and he's having to work out how he's going to say it, it's all about the details and you have to make the details your own. And you kind of think, well, this is basically Tarantino's MO, isn't it? It's like, yeah, yeah you know everything. You know everything about this world, yeah. all the small details. So therefore... You took the drugs to the airport? To make it, yeah, yeah. It's like, kind of, yeah, why did you do that? And just the fact that he's a cop, he knows why... Why they would stop them? And it's yeah. like, yeah, what was it for? Just a couple of traffic violations that he hadn't paid, and they stopped him for like a broken tail lighting, and had to go to county, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like that's just really good because he just would know that because he's a cop. And, and that's the lovely. Sorry, I'm, don't no, no. there's in that scene when they're in the bar. Uh, Harvey, Ke- we talked about you last night. Harvey Keitel is wearing this slightly colourful sh- uh, short sleeve shirt, and he's just leaning in to the, listen to the story. And he's Augie from Smoke. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Which is another film all about telling stories. And there's the wonderful payoff in The End of Smoke, where it's the Christmas story. Yes. And he's talking to William Hurt about it. And William Hurt, who we bored him to death about in the, the JFK story, had a lot of time for, uh, for, for William Hurt. And he's saying, you know, it takes a lot of talent to be a bullshitter. And it's like, you've got to be able to give enough detail. And they just have this conversation. And... In Harvey Keitel in Smoke, he's got such a happy expression on his face for having entertained his friend, but also yeah. to being quite happy at being challenged as to whether or not it's true. And he's not going to be. And it's the same smile on his face in the bar when Tim Roth is telling the commo right. story. Bullshit is a real talent, Augie. To make up a good story, you have to know how to push all the right buttons. I'd say you were up there among the masters. What do you mean? I mean, um, it's a good story. Shit. If you can't share your secrets with your friends, then what kind of friend are you? Exactly. Life just wouldn't be worth living, would it? Oh, it's such a lovely... I love Smoke. I love Smoke. Smoke's a great film. Yeah. If you want to watch Reservoir Dogs off the back of this podcast, thank you very much. But watch Smoke first, because Smoke is an underseen film, and it's fucking oh, brilliant. It's really lovely. And Blue in the Face is really good as well. Yeah, it is, yeah. Also, oh, that's well, the point, because um, <laughs> Gus Fring is in Smoke. And Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah. Yes, he is. That's right, yes. And he's it's also uh, in Usual Suspects. Yeah, Another that's film, right. a sort of indie um, Tarantino follow on film about people who tell endless stories. Okay, the rabbit hole gets deeper. Could you say that Breaking Bad is from 
what Tarantino was doing in the 90s, it builds up to that sort of thing. Could yeah. the Sopranos have come from that as well? In well, I think of... it is, because it's what you were saying earlier about Joss Whedon. All of a sudden, trash Pulp Fiction got credible. Yeah. All became lucrative, one yeah, or two. Yeah, yeah. And some of that well, meant both, shit, and let's go to CSI. And some of it became fabulously effective, and you've suddenly got David Simon, and you've suddenly got David Milch, and you've got brilliant... TV being told and it's Sopranos Breaking Bad Breaking Bad especially because it is pop and the story yeah, it is, keeps yeah, changing indeed, keeps yeah. changing and keeps changing and that bar that he tells the lion is a place called The Lodge and that's a gay bar and they went in and they said this is a good bar there are lots of pictures of men kissing and they said it's they just said, like a police academy skit yeah they, they went to the blue with the leather cap <laughs> and they said we need to shoot here uh, we, we need to shoot our movie can we have your bar for the night so they yeah, so they found this place and said yeah this is perfect um, but it's it, great there's no women in this bar yeah indeed yeah. <laughs> and it's called The Lodge and it would be interesting though if it's still there but I don't think yeah, I, I guess they didn't ask to read the script yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like on one of the very very small things go back to V vs V which you were saying Pulp Fiction just mixed the dance sequence from that the jewellery store in this is called Karina's Jewels which is Anna Karina who was obviously yeah. the woman from oh, I like that v stuff. V. Yeah. Okay. I really like that stuff yeah, yeah. Really. Um, um, sorry because at some no. point you're going to want to pull the plug but it just reminded me we were talking about it um, we haven't talked about 12 Angry Men in this film yes because it, very good point because you did a really good review of the criteria the criteria yeah, yeah. wasn't it of 12 Angry Men which is another film by first time director yeah I can bet it's it's a localised localised area with a four yeah. male cast genre trappings but it's all about talking and you don't see the crime and you don't see, and don't see oh the my crime, god yeah. you don't see the crime that's Absolutely. right that's really good <laughs> I completely forgot that I made that comparison Jesus Christ <laughs> well no, that was what's cool because you cut it out of your review but I was just watching Reservoir Dogs as you posted your review. Oh, did I get to know? Yeah, yeah. I remember and then I emailed you about it. And you said, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the review was running long, so I cut it out. God, if there's one thing that Tarantino's daughters... Cut nothing. Cut else. nothing. Leave all your darlings in. Never kill your darlings. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's also one of those things where one of the film, things about this film is that you get a wide shot and then you get a close-up. And it's, this, it's just one space is very easy to make out where you are. But it's disorientating because of the way that it's all being shot and that you'll go in for like a shot that's you know, wide and then it's and then it's close and then it goes back to wide and then it's moving and it's the same thing that Sidney Lumet was doing where you mm. you just get you you crank up the heat and then you get tighter and tighter and tighter and then you break it a little bit and then you go in again. I think the only difference is in twelve angry men characters get called out for their racism. Yes, indeed, that's right. Backs turned on the racist. And also, I mean, let's face it, Reservoir Dogs is a classic film, but Twelve Angry Men is one of the best films of all they're time, right. isn't it? I love Twelve Angry Men. Oh, God. And there are almost as many female characters. Exactly. Yeah, indeed. It's like, well, there are, that's right. It's like, yeah, it's all, it's all male cast. You don't see the crime. The only difference, I think, is that, um, yeah, he does get called out on his racism and it's not in colour. <laughs> but it's all about colour. It's, um... <laughs> Oh, was there anything else that you were going to say while I think about... What have I missed that I'm going to kick myself for when I hit stop? Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, dear. I was just talking about the indie film thing. Because, again, feel free to trim. But um, we were talking about the, the thing, and I hadn't realised that the thing was written by Bill Lancaster, Burt Lancaster's son. Yeah. And Burt Lancaster was going to be in Kiss the Spider-Woman and, and uh, Gorky Park, and his role got taken away from William Hurt, who we referenced earlier. But also that Burt Lancaster was one of the first people to do indie filmmaking on that kind of scale back in the early 50s. Mm. 
he didn't just make star vehicles for himself, but he also made quite small, profitable, very quite influential films. I mean, he did Marty, didn't he? Which yes. I have to say, I haven't seen. But That's it's good. that sort of like model of no, we'll just make it ourselves has always been there. This is kind of like a, this is kind of like a cycle that will keep coming back, keep coming back. We talk about um, Burt Lancaster didn't get on with John Cassavetes. He was in the Cassavetes film, and again, I realise I've not seen. Hardly yeah, any John Cassavetes yeah, films at all. And yet that was a, the other guy who was kind of like, nope, it's not going to cost very much money. I'll get my friends to make it. We'll do it really quick. We'll just get it. We'll do it. And he was making... It's a bunch of guys talking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he was... Because that's... You, anyone can that's right, yeah. do that. You, you just need to get someone's house that yeah. you can shoot in and then you have people talking. You then go on to things like The Room. I mean, The Room is like a Tarantino <laughs> film in terms of this is one guy's vision. It's an artistic statement burnt onto the screen. It's just that this mm. guy doesn't have talent and doesn't know how to do it. It's, um, but that's not going to stop him. But I think more personally is the fact that the late, great George A. Ramiro... You didn't mention him, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. Just, he did the same thing. It was like, he, he did what Tarantino almost did with Reservoir Dogs, which was that he shot it just raised from the cash from industries and companies in the local area, and he shot it at weekends, and over the year, he had this film. And then he released the film, and it's a horror classic, and it completely redefined the genre in terms of what you expect from, you know, the hero survives the film. Um, but also the hero is completely wrong in terms of what he's, in terms of how they say they should go about the evening because yeah. he does what the villain says and that's how he survives the evening. But then, of course, there's like a, there's like a horrible epilogue to it. But that was someone saying, yeah, we are going to make a film and we're going to do it for quite commercial reasons. It's a horror film because we know the horror sells and it can play again. Yeah. on the drive-in circuit. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Did we watch that um, Dinner for Five, you know, the John Favreau, um, I watched it with you, yeah. Yeah. So have you, have you seen this? No, I haven't. But I think it's a great YouTube recommendation. Basically, mm. he just did a series, he did a couple of series of this thing where he just gets five filmmakers or creators just to sort of sit around a table and talk for half an hour over while they have a meal. And it's quite a disparate population he gets chatting away. And of course, it's there's our connection because John Favreau made his name <laughs> with Swingers doing um, his very sort of like low-budget indie film and then... He's Iron an Iron Man. Man, so he has got this leap from indie. So perhaps it's less Tarantino and more Favreau in terms of but making that and leap. Of course, he's an actor, and of course, he's an actor. Very good. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which um, is and he, and he is an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but there's a great dinner for five. Is it called Dinner for Five? Party of Five? I'm getting mixed up with that horrible dinner for five. Um, Party of Five is the is the shite series. Yeah. yeah, but he does one with I think it was um, Rob Zombie. Bruce yeah. Campbell and Roger Corman and they're talking about their exploitation films and Corman's talking about no we only had one copy of the film we would go on a tour of the country and we would pull up at the film we'd pull up in town and we'd show that one film one copy of the film we had we'd make our money and then we'd go on to the next one we'd go on to the next one and go on to the next one and this brilliant sort of like you don't have to be banking the blockbusters this is the film I make and this is how I make my living and I thought that was really really interesting sort of but Tarantino never appeared on one of those, did he? He's no. kind of because he got in really big names, didn't he? Because he's John Favreau. But I don't. But it would have been good to get him in there because that's the thing about Tarantino is that he's always interesting in interviews and he's always and he's good when he talks about his love of cinema. Yeah, and when I mean, I think you know the great work that Tarantino has yet to produce, and it could be his last great work, is actually a book of film criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, around the world in eighty films or something like that, where he just takes you on a global tour of cinema and writes about it because that's 
is something that I'll never get bored of, just listening to him talk about cinema. People talking about their enthusiasms, it's yeah. a thing. For three hours. For three yeah. hours. <laughs> but it's two hours and 59 minutes and 12 seconds... 13, 14, 15. How long was the JFK one? Well, JFK, I think we were it for just over three hours and it came in at about two hours and 42 minutes, something like that. So this one will probably... Well, this one we also had a cup of tea that was made during this. So <laughs> <laughs> this is going to come in a little bit shorter. But there's so much gold here. Thank you, guys. Um, any final thoughts or anything you want to say about Reservoir Dogs or the other films of Quentin Tarantino? Or, the... or just anything. <laughs> or just anything. <laughs> anything pertinent to Quentin Tarantino. Anything you want to say there. I think it would be good, actually, as a follow-up to this, when he makes his next film, and he's got two more films in him, because he keeps saying he's going to make ten films, but it's all a bit screwy in terms of how many films he's made. Yeah, it's like The Doctor. But it's also one of those things where it's There's like... two David Tennant doctors. Is the war doctor one of the doctors? Who knows how many doctors? Yeah, I've, I've, I've just lost track of that. But the <laughs> he says that The Hateful Eight is his eighth film. There's the point of, like, Kill Bill's just one movie. As Mark Kermode said, no, it's two movies. We paid for it twice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Ooh, that that's the commode story. <laughs> that's the, that is the commode story, that's right. <laughs> And it's a really good point. But yeah, the next time he... So, so when he releases his ninth film, his penultimate film, we will have to get together to do a podcast to review that off the back of what we've said here. I've got no idea what he's doing next, actually. <laughs> well, he's doing the Manson story. Oh, what? Yes. He's, he's doing, doing the, Manson. About the Manson murders. Oh, Jesus Christ. So everything we've just no, said... Don't I'm sure he'll handle it tastefully. <laughs> yeah, so, indeed. David Acuffy's David just been doing that, hasn't he? Yes, yeah. in Aquarius, yeah. which was which was good for four episodes. Then he realised it was actually not going to get any better than this. So it's like, oh no, it's fine. There's a um, there's a uh, there's a podcast um, called You Must Remember This. I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before. Um, uh, sort of written, directed, and narrated by uh, Corinne Longworth, and she did a whole season on the Manson murders a few years back. And All right. If you if you can give up sort of I don't know, tw- I think it's some. It's, she does something like twelve episodes on it, and they're each uh, sort of forty minutes long. If you can, yeah, it's a pretty definitive take. What's it called? Uh, you must remember this. Okay, cool. Thank you. Mm, give that a listen. Cool. Well, gentlemen, <laughs> thank you for this rambling. <laughs> Let's go to work. Let's go to work. You know, I, frankly, I don't know how I came up with it. I was trying to come up with something that was like a um, like tough guy, existential, deadpan, comedic. You know, and to me, the idea of uh, uh, of uh, uh, Mr. White, Mr. Orange, Mr. You know the Mr. Blonde. Who I thought was kind of clever. All right, you know, I, I thought that was really interesting. You know, it, it, it fed into the tough guy, existential, almost French noir aesthetic of the movie. Don't drop the gun! Drop the fucking gun! We're gonna fucking blow you away! 